from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Coming to you from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio, looking out onto Locust Walk on a frigid, welcome to winter kind of November morning. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew, at least for the moment we have all four creators and co-hosts, faculty colleagues here at the University of Pennsylvania, Shane Jensen to my right, Audie Weiner straight away, and Eric Bradlett to my left. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. morning. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Looking forward to the show. We have a regular show in that we have guests at the bottom of this hour and the top of next hour. They're both football guests. Looking forward to that. We have Stephen Godfrey on uh, the bottom of this hour talking about college football. And then Michael Lombardi coming up top of the next hour talking about professional football. Should be good fun. You guys can jump in here. You want to talk about football or any other sport, give us a ring. one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six, Or drop us an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com or hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyBall is our handle there at WMoneyBall. You can reach out, give us questions, complaints, observations, whatever you got. Fellas, it's November and the sport is over, but you're still wearing your baseball hats, I see. I, I'm wearing my baseball hat, sure. I, it was freezing outside. I needed an extra that, layer of. I don't think that this much of a freezing hat. I mean, most people no, don't wear baseball hats. No, for, you, first of all, you got a helmet on. It just adds layers. That's, all, see, that's what see, it's about. The layers. whole thing is you wake up early. <laughs> you don't have time to take a shower. You put on your winter hat. You're like, I got to take this thing off once I'm at work. So I got to have something to put on. And you have your baseball cap on backup. I see. So you don't have to take the baseball cap off when you come in. That's the life we're leading. That, no, you put Shane the baseball Jensen cap on. <laughs> that's your indoor After, wear. That's right. your indoor Hold wear. Hold on, Adi, you're going to teach in like an hour. You'll be in the classroom. Will you be wearing the Yankees no, hat I in the classroom? No, you're gonna, you're gonna, oh, yeah, I you won't. Oh, yeah, you don't I would not want to wear, you know, colors like that. All right. It's threatening. Right. It's, uh... Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Makes right. people uncomfortable. <laughs> okay, if you're not paying attention to baseball, because we've got at least a 15-minute break before you start talking about the, the Houston Astros. hot stove season. Oh, yeah, we're probably going to have to talk about the hot stove season. That'll happen during spring training. And also the classic Yankees overpaying of a starting pitcher where they're going to play Garrett Cole maybe $300 million for nine years. When <laughs> they he might pitch do it twice. Four of those, yeah. Three or four of those nine years. Yeah. That's hilarious. All right. But, okay. If, if we're not going to talk baseball, what, what, what has your eye, Jim? What have you been thinking about? Well, I'm still – I'm so happy about college football right now. Because really? the doomsday scenario oh, is getting yeah. closer by the minute. What, what, what is, is your, that? Tell me about right, this doomsday. So I'm going to give it to you right now. So, LSU and Georgia meet in the SEC championship game, which is the path we seem to be heading on now. Georgia beats LSU. Okay, so now we have three one-loss teams. In so, the, but, so, by the way, you have to get Georgia by Auburn, okay. uh, presumably. I, I didn't say it's – I just no, said – head, We're it's heading the, towards it. They were so, heading yeah. towards it. Yeah. So, Georgia beats LSU, out. let's say, in a close game. Georgia at that time is the number one team in the nation. So, Georgia and LSU, let's say maybe Georgia and LSU both go – First of all, Alabama's sitting there with one loss, but they don't go. If two SEC teams go, now what do you do? So let's say the Big Ten. We've got Penn State with one loss, Ohio State undefeated, Minnesota undefeated. So suppose Minnesota beats Ohio State in a very close Big Ten championship game. So we now have those two teams, one undefeated. Minnesota would have to go. 
Ohio State has one loss. Clemson, you know, is going to go. And then the dream I'm really hoping for is Baylor runs the table. (laughs) And now Baylor (laughs) is sitting there undefeated. Wait. So if you take two SEC teams, which people are talking about, you have to take Baylor. You have to take Clemson. Well, you're not taking a Big Ten champion. You're not taking the Pac-12 champion. So... I mean, that's the doomsday scenario. Or maybe a Big Twelve, ch- a Big Ten champion that would be uh, well, you'd have undefeated. To take, you'd have to take an undefeated. Well, you can't do pit, all. You can't take all the juice. You can't specified. take them all. Well, no, but yeah. so let's say the following: LSU wouldn't make it into that scenario. Undefeated Clemson, Minnesota, Baylor, and a, and the SE champ Georgia just beat LSU. I'm thinking. By the LSU way, could you imagine? Away. Let's go back twelve weeks, whatever it is, in Morton Moneyball. When Shane put when Cade put up the predictions of the four, and we all way overestimated. Could you imagine if it's Clemson, Baylor, Minnesota, and Georgia? How far <laughs> down was that? Like it Not, wasn't it even was on the list. Well, it hasn't happened up yet. Your so, uh, scenario four hundred and thirty-seven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- 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 I mean, that's it's kind of fun to speculate that, but the downside of that one, Eric, is you're just walking us down such a low probability event. Even now, even Could, with undefeated Tell us Minnesota what you think is the Baylor. most likely outcome, Kate. Well, I can run that. I didn't run it before the show, but I can run it here in a second and tell you what the most likely, but if I were to just look at it and guess, well, I can show you our, our playoff probabilities, which is going to get us pretty close to there. So our playoff probabilities, we have LSU virtually locked in at this point. They, they have a loss to give, is the idea. They could they could get upset at A and M in the last game of the regular season. They could get knocked off by Georgia. If they do one of those things, they're probably. Still you think get even in. if let's just take it. You think even if I'll make it up. Let's say Georgia for some reason beats them thirty-four to fourteen in the SEC championship game. You think no, LSU would still go? No, clearly you could look bad enough in that game. It is a it is a political thing there at the end. It's kind of a beauty pageant there at the end. And moreover, I mean, what if Georgia loses to Auburn to get a second loss now and, and then, then does him. that? So you can conjure a scenario, but it's very unlikely conjuring. Clemson, virtually locked in, 0.9. So we have LSU like 0.9. So what is Clemson the threat to Clemson not making it? Losing or, or Yeah, they or can't getting, lose. They, yeah. There's, there's, everyone believes that they can't lose. They'll be knocked out. So it's very unlikely they'll lose because they play in the ACC. But, you know, they've got to go through a title game, and they've got a couple games left. Ohio State, we have almost as high, 0.88. Now, does that imply that you think Ohio State can withstand a loss? You know, I haven't worked through the scenarios on the Big Ten. I think it mostly implies that we don't think Ohio State's going to take a loss. So even though, you know, Minnesota's looked great, and, you Presumably, know, if it's not to the Minnesota time. in the championship they beat, game, they, they could beat Penn take State, a loss, so that right? makes. Yeah. They, they play Michigan, and Michigan. Mm-hmm. We believe Michigan's good. I mean, Michigan is kind of underperforming, but we still have the number twelve in the country. I mean, if they played Ohio State right now, we'd make them about a fifteen-point dog on a neutral field. Minnesota, we're going to make about a seventeen-point dog on a neutral field. So these are games that Ohio State should win. I mean, we're big believers, and most people are at this point in Ohio State. So those three are just virtual locks at like point nine and above. So now you're just playing through the scenarios of who the fourth team is. Is this is the Massey Peabody view of the world? And you know you've got three heavy contenders: Oklahoma, Alabama, Georgia, and we can talk about how that all might shake out. And then you've got you've got kind of these 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 long shots that have emerged. They're not trivial. So Minnesota, Utah, Oregon, Penn State—they're all around seven percent. So it's and even Baylor, five percent. It's not. It's more interesting than it was, you know, even just a couple of weeks ago, even though the top three seem pretty locked up. Do we think this leads to, you know, I've been a favorite of an 18 playoff for a while. Does, is this the, the year that, like, tips things over the edge? Or not particularly. They're, like, there's, this year's not really any different in the sense of, I'm just asking you guys from what you've observed, like, there may end up being four teams you could make a legitimate argument mm-hmm. for should be in that fourth yeah. slot this year. And is this the year that I finally it. tips it? Hey, Eric, this is exactly what I've been thinking the last 24 hours or so. This is this this is kind of ideal for those who want the 18 playoff because it, we haven't yet had a year 
We've had one year that there were four or five. Yeah, there's like a yeah. four or five. There's a four or five. Maybe two of the five years it's been really controversial on, and even most of the time it hasn't been that controversial, frankly. Other than the TCU Baylor thing, but people and, can can potentially at the end of this whole run look at the kind of rankings and sort of see the main differentiation at around like seven, eight or so instead. It depends on how it goes. Yeah, but it could be. I mean, we've yet to yeah. have that year where it's like four teams, oh. three, four teams vying for that four spot with reasonable arguments to make. Okay, yeah. so a couple observations. First, we're not even pretending that they're students. Second, why don't we just have a shorter season and a sixty-four team? And they can call it, I don't know, <laughs> December Madness. <laughs> I mean, if what, would, what would what, be the downside of going into January? Even under, like, explain I mean, it's an to extra, me. I mean, because this is, I mean, these are supposed to be college athletes, right? So this is a very long season. Oh, so and these are brutal do. games, right? So oh, you're really yeah. asking yeah. them to. Adding a game, one game for yeah. you know, two teams. That's, so, that's, so, so the line is somewhere between 14 Games and no, 15 I mean, games I mean, where it becomes yeah. unreasonable. I, I don't, it's already I don't really... pushed into unreasonable. Well, that, that's, that's my. That's, I mean, I and we're just pushing further. Hey, right? real quickly, did y'all catch this? I mean, moment? it's a weird system. Yeah, might as well push it to the limit. Speaking of these guys being kids, did y'all catch this moment in the LSU game when that running back for LSU comes off the field late in the game? Little, little number twenty-two had such a big game against those guys, and he takes this hug from his coach, probably his position coach. I'm guessing. I don't know the yeah. names of these guys. I'm sorry. But they had this extended hug and dialogue yeah. on the sideline after this guy had this breakout game. And you're reminded, he's a kid. Yeah, he's yeah. a kid, and this is a parent figure to him. And they're having a real moment there on the sideline. It was one of my favorite things I've seen in college football in a long well, time. Well, let me tell you, we had a moment like that in pro football when Lamar Jackson, after shredding the Bengals, came off the field. And literally, they showed it on Center for like five minutes. John Harbaugh's over there with him hugging him, and literally, the game's still going on. And John Harbaugh must have been sitting next to him, talking to him for about three minutes. Mm. And, but just, like, the way, I mean, I understand Lamar Jackson's a young player, but he's a professional football yeah. player. John Harbaugh was there talking it's amazing. to him for John three Harbaugh or four minutes. take his focus away from such a competitive game to be able right. to do that. Listen, what a, what speaking a, of competitive what a game, professional. I watched Jets-Giants, and Daniel Jones is a baby. I mean, yeah. that was the thing just occurs. He's 22 years old. No, well, he, no, no, well, Joe Burrow. I think babies have better ball control than that. <laughs> oh, okay. Joe Burrow, the starting quarterback for LSU, is older than Lamar Jackson. Yeah. Lamar Jackson's wow. in his second full season in the NFL, and Joe Burrow is in whatever, his 14th season as a college quarterback. But he is older than Lamar Jackson. Just We can't say college kids right. are kids and then and then come up with this Lamar story and not put him in the same category. It, that's way, fascinating. This, By the way, we have Cincinnati like – Bottoming out, they're they're far worse than Miami now. And a neutral field will make them a two or three point underdog. Oh, Miami's got the longest winning streak in the uh, AFC East right now. <laughs> Amazing. How do you how do you have the Jets lower than the Giants? I'm just uh, just shocked by this. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah, yeah we you did. Do. Well, they're basically the same. Yeah. I mean, a two, not quite a two point difference. But, I mean, you, you can't even. They're so far down. It's hard to distinguish. It's in the nose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think. By the way, I think this is one of the most exciting college football seasons I've seen in a very long time. And I don't mean because, possibly because in some sense, I'd be interested to see at the end of the season, I don't think there's a super team. And what I mean by that is, if the best team from this year played, let's say, Clemson from last year, or played Alabama from two years ago, what are, I'm just, I'm asking a question. It just seems to me that every, I could come up with some flaw on every team here. Like LSU did win the game. They beat Alabama, but they did give up 40 points. Let's not make it seem like this was the old LSU Alabama nine to six win. I mean, 
I it just see I don't know if Massey Peabody's good at comparing across years, but to me it's just there's a bunch of very very good teams, but I don't think anyone's going to look back at the 2019 college football season and say this is a historically great team that's playing. So we can just go grab last year. So we're looking at we're looking at week 12. I guess I should back up. I got the wrong one, but but is it built to be comparable across yeah, years? Why not? Same methodology, well, it's the same, same units. Yeah, same right. same thing entirely. Um, so the thing is, we have Ohio State at you know plus thirty four or so, which means we'd favor them by thirty four against an average team on a neutral field right now. Let's let's compare week to week. Um, this time, this la- this time last year, the you know last year we had these. They felt like kind of generational teams, and it was two above everybody else, Alabama and Clemson, and there were arguments about which was better. But they really felt like they were pushing the limit of how good a team could be. We had Alabama at plus thirty six point three. And Clemson, you know, right behind them, plus 35.5 at this time last year. And that was like eight and nine points better than the next teams. These two teams, plus 36 and plus 35. Where do we have Ohio State right now? Plus 34. Okay, so it's not maybe. Okay, okay, it's true, but it's not. But it's hard to get out there in that margin. Pushing the right tail like that, you're really pushing up against the limits. And so two points at that level is pretty significant. I think we felt categorically different. That said, I mean, people love Ohio State right now. Ohio State looks dang near flawless right now. I'm glad mm-hmm. you brought that up because, you know, when Kentucky lost to Evansville last night in college basketball, it made me think exactly about the point, Kate. It's, it's kind of like we actually planned this, but we didn't. It was the exact point, which is when you're in the far right tail of these prediction problems, it's just really hard. Because if you look at the FPI numbers, they had, well, uh, 96% chance Kentucky would win. You're telling me that that's what it was. So you're telling me that one in 25 times an Evansville would, well, let me tell you, it hadn't happened in 15 years. So then you start to say, okay, something's going on. Either that's random, you know, yeah. it could have happened, or it's miscalibrated. It's not 96%, it's 99%. Uh, but I the mean, model just can't push it to 99 well, It just not, can't do it. The models aren't built at the tails. They're built well, at the middle. And this is Well, you the don't problem. have enough data in the tails to build the models really accurately oh, yeah, there. Obviously. But, but, or you have to have a, a model structure that allows you to say something on the tails. Yeah. That's the real thing, because people that's who it. are doing this aren't playing with more subtle structures. And I can say, yeah. I can tell you that, that Rufus and I have talked about this in the last week. It's like, should we be should we be worrying more about how Alabama plays when they play LSU than how Alabama plays when they play the average team? And could we model it to capture that? And you, you kind of can't get both. You either say we're modeling this for the average, which means we're going to underestimate how they do against the best, or we're going to model this against the best, kind of full potential, and then we're going to overestimate what they do when they play South Alabama and the line is 42 and they, you know, we have them winning well, look, by 60. There's a lot of evidence of this. You remember, it, this is the first year it got broken. You remember there was something like 26 consecutive games where an NFL team was favored by more than 14 points and didn't cover. I mean, there was, again, it, there, there's been tons of evidence that yeah. these models don't do particularly well in the tails. But I'm interested in your response there, Kate. Do you actually think you would need separate models? Like if you wanted to build, let's call it a model for the tail, and then you'd have to build another model. Yeah. Like we, we talk about regression versus like an ordinal regression. i got to build one model for the far right tail, and then I'm going to build another model for the average performance. I think you probably mean a quantile regression. A quantile. Sorry, uh, I meant yeah. quantile. So, so I mean, I, this is, the problem with this is that you're using a linear model, ultimately. So you're fitting at the mean and trying to extend to the tails. 
with some kind of linear extrapolation in multiple variables and multiple dimensions with obviously with undoubtedly having interactions. But there isn't much data out at the edges. Not, not much and, interactions, by the way. Not, yeah. not much yeah. interaction. So there isn't much data out the te- at the edges, and it's hard to know what's happening there. And you're probably, I mean, I've looked at some of these forecasts, and they do tend to be uncalibrated and the upper ends. Mm-hmm. So do you want a separate model? Probably not. Do you want to adjust? Probably, but it's hard to know whether you're doing is just, you know, pie in the sky, you know, flexing with the data well, or something al- real. It also gets back to what we've talked about. It's, it's exactly what Cade said, but I'll just translate it in my own mind. What, would, what do you want the model to be good at? So think about a loss function. You could tweak the Massey Peabody model so it's not entirely linear so that it does better in the tails. You can do that because you have an out-of-sample prediction. You can tweak it. But then it probably is going to do worse when Alabama plays a middle team. That's right. So what is the goal of the model? And that's, that's right. this is a great lesson for everybody, which is you're not looking to predict the right tail. I mean, that's if that were the objective function, you might still have the same primitives, but the way it comes into an actual prediction might be very different. Yeah. But, but there's a reason why the Vegas odds tend to blow it, and that's because they're really the worst at the edges. These probabilities are just – and they're not designed because the gaps between – you can't get – you can't place a bet on the other side. They're both terrible. Both bets. You can't take a bet on the on the favorite that's good and then have a bet on the underdog that's also good. This doesn't work out mm-hmm. at the extremes. Mm-hmm. They're both mm-hmm. be- both sides of the bet are bad. They're taking a big cut. This is Wharton Moneyball. You guys can jump in here and join us. One eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or hit us up on Twitter at W Moneyball. Have the whole crew here for another. 15 minutes or so, we're going to slowly lose people this morning. It's going to be down to me by the end of the thing. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> what, I'll, stick, I'll stick it out with you. I'll stick Shame. it out with I'll you. I'll stick it out. What, what, what else, while we got the whole crew, have you guys been thinking about? Astros, well, anyone want to talk some baseball? Just I know, just for t- old time's sake, the, the, the news talking about the yeah, Astros. What, what about that? Well, it's interesting. But they, so the claim right now is that the, the assertion being made by people reporting this, and in 2017 they had cameras and they were actually stealing signs. The assertion was by a former player on by the Astros. By a former player. And yeah. this, but there was, there was, I think there was, this has been rumored and discussed for a long time, insofar as it, the Major League Baseball made actual changes in the rules uh, for staff. You can't have, staff can't come wander around was the stadium. Was it because like of it, be uh, a prior incident with the Astros? Or just steal because I, I feel like this comes with up the Astros. with okay. the Astros. Absolutely, because this comes up it. with various teams. You know, has come up with various teams over the last few years. You're, th- yes, you're right. thinking about the Patriots, I think. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, <laughs> different sport. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But what's, what's true. interesting, of course, is that, is that steal them and give them things the like off. this have becoming more common. I mean, there was concern when the Yankees lost to the Red Sox that Severino's was tipping his pitches. But what what I know is happening is that the analysts and the crews of teams have uh, they have many of them. They are filming pitchers and studying what they're doing to see if they're tipping pitches. As long as it's not real time, that's okay. No, that's absolutely. And it is absolutely okay, but this never happened in a structured, um, systematic way before. Mm-hmm. Yet some of the teams are clearly so. Doing so this. It, it, it almost, to a certain extent, makes it harder to diagnose Stein stealing if you yes. don't, if you don't know if it's kind of contemporary right. versus just right. well researched. But, right? the, but the theory was that they they had this elaborate system that ended with somebody in the dugout making a noise mm-hmm. that would signal to the person at the plate just before the pitch was delivered what kind of pitch was coming. Right. Right. And there are videos of su- supposedly the noise happening and then mapping that so, to pitches. So I think... So I, real, real quickly, though, sorry. if you look at... So Matt, Matt threw on these stats yesterday. If you look at the, like... K, the strikeouts to walks ratio, and is this the right ratio? Uh, not yeah. ratio, subtraction, I think. He, oh, just the difference yeah. between strikeouts and walks. So the Astros are almost off the chart compared to everybody else. Everyone, everyone else is in this smooth curve, exactly what you'd expect, and then Astros being the top performing team, 
are a step gap, change yeah. different from everybody else. It's suspicious in a way. But then if you ask, look, this thing is supposed to be happening in the Astrodome, uh, not the Astrodome, whatever they're playing in Houston these days, the home field is where they're doing this thing. You would expect that gap to be dramatically higher at home than it is away. That would, you would think, be the test if whether this fraud, this 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 signal stealing is driving that gap. And it's not. If anything, it's that a little bit That gap is better. not. But they, little, are, they were an incredible home team last year. Yeah, the only thing I wanted to bring up, it's directly related to this, was so let's imagine... We don't know. But let's imagine they were doing this. Okay. Obviously, there's a chance of getting caught, and there's a penalty for that. How much can I, I'm going to go back to the term I use every time on the show? How much can the effect size be that it would be worth them potentially cheating to do this? Like, are we saying that it would raise them from? We've always talked about coin flip. Yeah. Does this raise somebody to fifty three forty seven? Does this raise somebody into fifty six forty four? I'm just wondering if you could steal signs. How much do we think it would actually affect the probabilities? Because they're let's assume that they're. I didn't say they're doing it. Let's say they were. They're not irrational. If it was fifty point one to forty nine point nine, they would say, "Look, come why on, bother? Why right. bother doing this?" So, how large an effect size does something have to be? Any thoughts? What's the punitive damage of this? Like, well, if if they had gotten caught, well, what's the penalty? Do we even know? Probably not much. It wouldn't be a forfeiture of a game. I, I can almost title. guarantee yeah. that, right? So. So you're saying a rational cost-benefit analysis doesn't need much benefit. You to know, make it right? Worthwhile. I mean, yeah, we have to keep in mind. I mean, if you want to kind of make that sort of connection, we're like, oh, what does the do effect I, size have I, to be for them to do this? Do what, I get what's to be, the penalty? Do I get to be a marketing professor for just a minute? Yeah. How about brand? How about the fact that the Houston, if oh, yeah. this is found to be true, oh yeah, this definitely puts a taint on the Houston Astros title. It definitely, if someone were thinking of free agency, if someone were thinking about the franchise, all of a sudden it could have an impact. I'm just saying, this is okay, what I'm trying to take the other You side know enough titles, you get over the chain of cheating. Let me yeah, just tell yeah, you that I'm right wondering, now. Yeah, I'm wondering, <laughs> because take a look at the, at, the, at the Patriots. I mean, this this is absolutely affects their brand, but it's a new brand. They kind of like that brand. They, they cut through, do anything that you can. You're not cheating. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. Brand, that's a brand. Well, I, I mean, it's, <laughs> they, it's, they, it's, they it's, it's also, they've been accused of cheating enough times. Times and and I think only like a subset of those they, they hopefully cheated. are seen as legitimate uh, by by yeah, by the public. Yeah, but I'm just talking about the brand. And so now it's, it's kind of like you know perception. I mean, this bad I mean the, the, the question about Houston is Houston is certainly yes, it has a potential downside, but Houston is now thought of as a ruthless team, and that ruthlessness is another kind of brand, and I'm not sure it's so unpopular. It, well, you know, you have to distinguish the feelings of the fans of the team versus the rest of the world. And for a long time, the Astros have been the darlings of the analytics darlings, community. Yes. Of the analytics the community analytics in particular. But also and, the baseball and, community. Right. I mean, because they've got very likable players and they play an exciting brand of baseball. And this, I mean, I've talked... That's I mean, the this brand is, I was referring this to. This is purely, yeah. purely anecdotal, but it's really yeah. been disappointing to hear friends who were longtime Astros admirers, if not full-on fans, who are now pulling against them. Just This is even before this stuff. This is just because this is the new stuff and, and the way and the way it was handled. That's all yeah. the brand. That's the Absolutely. But, describing. That's the brand I was referring to. But you're talking about the dis, but a decision-making aspect of this. So, yes, this brand will, is and, dying. And, 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 but and a I, new brand is taking its place. Is the net a loss? I mean, that's a real issue. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think the, the other interesting question that comes out of this is really just kind of what that effect size could possibly be like how big could you have how big would an effect size be like let's say they were sealing signs as often as they basically could in a game and you, you started them off at 50 50 for the game how far would you guys just kind of like based on what you know about baseball 
push that if you knew that they were stealing signs. I know we're talking like, about maybe ex- 55 at most. I know we're talking about the extreme, but I have to admit, the first thing that came to mind when you said that was, they knew every single time what pitch Mariano Rivera was throwing, and it didn't help very much. Yes. Well, right. but, but that's an extreme yeah. case where right. I know. But yeah, if you knew that you know Justin Verlander was throwing a fastball versus a changeup on a given plate appearance, that's Got, I mean, Adi's yeah. the closest we have to someone that played real baseball. That's got to make huge. a huge difference for mm-hmm. it. For no, a, yeah. when you're getting a curveball or a fastball is just yeah. gigantic. Yeah, I, I just think it's disappointing. You, you know, you can't you can't whinge about teams like the Patriots cheating if you're not a Patriots fan. You can't whinge about that and then and then feel good when your team is looking like the same the same pattern. And yeah. it just you know, wh- wh- let's push. The, I mean, push the limits. I mean. Belichick is great at finding little wrinkles. Remember this offensive lineman stuff that he did a couple oh, of years he, ago? Well, yeah, the eligible John Har- receiver? Yeah. I mean, that was just brilliant. Honestly, John Harbaugh goes to the rules committee every year with like a thing he wants changed that <laughs> to Belichick, Belichick did to him. A loophole, a loophole <laughs> yeah. that got exploited. It's like one loophole per year John Harbaugh well, tries so, to correct. So good on Belichick for that. Yeah. But that's very different than very just different. full-on breaking the rules. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is sports this is for God's sake. I mean, you're supposed to like win on the field. It's, I don't know. I mean, this is easy, or easy rant to make. But it's just really disappointing. I just feel it more because this yeah. is a team that I've been pulling for. Yep. Yeah. No, I agree. So what else, gentlemen? Well, a couple things. Just quickly, just because I'm only here the first half hour. I don't want to make a claim there's a changing of the garden tennis. Oh, way, please make the claim. I'm dying for that claim. Well, yeah. All right. So, well, we all well, want to believe. Well, the ATP finals is going on right now. Just the men's side. Just to be clear, the top eight players in the world based on points that they've earned throughout the year are there. Not surprisingly, Nadal's one, Djokovic two, Federer three. Changing this, of the guard, this is right? not a power <laughs> rank. It's not a power rank thing. It's like no. the golf. No, world. no, no, no. It's it's you get it's like golf. You get points for certain tournaments it, depending it, on your yeah. place. It motivates you to play in tournaments. Pa- partly, it's partly. No, not ranking. just partly. It does because you could win. <laughs> okay. you could win Wimbledon, and if that's the only tournament you play, you don't end up in the top eight. So you've okay. got to play enough tournaments. So in one, they break. It so in, hold on, let me just say this is neat. I mean, this is great. Let's create the, the best eight in the world and play a little tournament. I wish they'd play like a round robin or something. They do. So oh, that's really? what I'm getting to. Delightful. So that's what I'm getting to. So the first round. Thank you. So the <laughs> perfect segue. The first round, they break it into two groups of four, and obviously they put like you know they split up one and two and then three and four, but that's randomized. So in one group is Novak Djokovic, number one in the world, or two in this case. Roger Federer, they're in the same bracket. Dominic Thiem and Marco Berrettini, who's, who's the eighth guy. Okay, so, so far, they've all played two matches. Thiem has beaten Djokovic and Federer. Wow. Okay. And Berrettini's lost to everybody. Thiem now advances to the knockout round. It's like, it's like uh, no. um, soccer. So you I thought play, you were say it's like the voice. No, it's like soccer. <laughs> so they advance, but the, now the Titanic battle is Federer and Djokovic are playing each other. Only one of them will advance to now to oh. the knockout round because theme so two, beat both two, of them. Two advance, two from, advance each from each group yep. four. And okay. then the other thing is, in his first match as the number one in the world, on the other side, Nadal. Nadal got blown out wow. by Alex Zverev, six two six four. Do they care very much about this? They do because Federer may be a little less so. This will decide Djokovic or Nadal, who's the number one player in the world for the year. Mm-hmm. So they absolutely care about this tournament. So, it's, that's the only two people that could end up number one in the world. And hold on, and how much they care about that, and why? Well, I think from a historical perspective, like if Djokovic were to win, I think he ties Federer for the most number ones in the world. And of course, Nadal's trying to prevent Djokovic from doing that. I think it's just year end number one. Actually, 
they'd all trade it for another major. But it means something in the tennis really? world. You're the really? year end number one. Year end number one is a thing. I kind of feel like I mean, it's, like it's, it's, it's hard to put your mind yeah. into what these these guys kind of how these guys view the world. But I would kind of feel this would probably be the next thing down from like winning majors. I would guess. Okay. And yeah, absolutely. No, no, this tournament is the elite players. I mean, it's the it's only yeah. the top eight that play. Look, Federer has also made it clear. That he's this is why what's so great about him. He's made it very clear. He goes, Look, I blew it at Wimbledon. He said this yesterday. Oh, yes, he did. I'm putting all my chips on the table in wow. this match with Djokovic coming up. Wow. So he said, Let's not think this is an ordinary match for me. He Jeez. says, This is absolutely an opportunity to get something back here. So he's absolutely hyped this match against Djokovic, which is tomorrow, as you know. Maybe I can get a little bit of payback for what happened at Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm saying this tournament absolutely yeah. means something to so, these so players. By, by the way, we talk about how if you could put, if you could get the data for motion tracking from hockey players, like real time in games, you could, you could, you could observe in measurable, objective ways the difference in effort exerted in overtime. For example, mm-hmm. how could we know? If, what, by what means would you measure? That that they care as much about this if if you could conjure this and collect any information you, could, you wanted with to. the same sort of spatial data I think you could do that in tennis right too you could sort of measure essentially effort or or, or kind of like, you know like speed to like a particular ball like compared to like their kind of well, historical how fast they get to that particular ball how much you know effort they put in going to that particular ball compared to their you know the rest well, of their Shane, kind couldn't of couldn't we do some of the work that you've done right? in baseball like with defensive play. And couldn't we kind of do the same yeah, thing? Yeah, in I tennis? guess that's kind of what I'm like. Describing. You know, I'm standing at this part of the court. The ball's moving this speed at this part of the court. I can look at either your historical data and say what's the probability you'll get to that ball. I mean, couldn't we do something like that? And similar, I, 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 would, I would ask tennis players first, like where is it that they would typically loaf? And where do they exert themselves? So and let them I, kind I, of guide you because tennis is a very funny game. <laughs> I love yeah. this. Hold on, so you could get that from the. I mean, worth it's worth asking them, of course. But you could try. You could get that from the data. It's you no, know, the thing the, is, is when, the question is, what does it mean? So, for example, when they they often will rest on on a on <laughs> right. opponent serve just to take some time off, to, right? Because yeah. they know they're going to lose sometimes it. Sometimes they rest on a set, and sometimes they rest. And so you don't necessarily know what a what a bad performance is in terms yeah. of effort, what it means. So I'm just looking. To imagine where is it there? Where is the yeah. effect? Where should you yeah. concentrate these? This this technology is the right way to go, but where in the in the course? So this, of the course this is of always match? always a good piece of advice. Yeah. This is a great experienced analyst saying, "Look, you've got you're good with data. Fine, fine, fine. But go talk to the people, yeah. especially if you don't know tennis well enough. Go yeah. talk to the people. But I do think this is kind of interesting, and we should have this. You could start measuring something about effort and motivation, or maybe you have people having a bad day. I'm not sure. We just haven't seen these data in tennis, but and what, it seems like they could be yeah. promising. What I was talking about also is in tennis, you have these extraordinarily high leverage points. Yes. And yeah. you can t- you don't have to play well the other points. You have to play okay, well, well in see, these high that, leverage that, points. That, that, gives that you, comes out. That gives you a way to test whether the data are meaningful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You look at the look at whatever data you want to in those moments versus in average moments well, to know, identify yeah. how you can see this. This little conversation does remind me of something that I think is for our next five years. If you look back historically, how many actual athletes have we had on our show? And it isn't very many. We have aged, retired We're athletes. Aged, retired. That's, that's yeah. our specialty. But I wonder whether or not we should consider forget Joey Chestnut, bringing so. them around a little bit more. Forget <laughs> Joey Chestnut. We have had Joey Chestnut on our show. So, so, so there you go. Just to, what, you know, now that analytics have been around for much more, have played a bigger role and it's more um, situated firmly, maybe we can hear from athletes and what they have yeah. to say. Well, yeah, Matty, Matty D, go, go sign us. 
us up some real people. All right, guys. <laughs> that's that's, that's the next first. Week, next week we'll be asking LeBron whether he loves during the regular <laughs> He's season. He's coming on the show. He listens to it every week. Come on, Matt. Get him. <laughs> All right, fellas. Been that's been the first quarter. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Dion Simpkins is back with us as not just associate producer, but also sound engineer, bringing some new sounds to the show. Up top and at the bottom of the hours as well. Always glad to have Dion Simpkins and his orange beats in here, making us feel bad about the radio shacks that SiriusXM makes us wear. Get us some beats. Get us some orange beats, man. You guys can jump in here and join us. One eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can hit us up on email. Maddie D standing by for your emails, even real time during the show, or if you're hearing a replay. Business radio at SiriusXM.com. Business radio at SiriusXM.com. Or hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyBall. We follow the whole world of sports analytics up there. We tweet sometimes about the world of sports analytics. You can send us questions or observations at WMoneyBall is our handle up there. Rolling into the second quarter of the show, we have joining us for the for the many, many times. I don't know how many times Stephen's been here. Stephen Godfrey, delighted to have Stephen back. Steve is Stephen is um, long time with SB Nation. He's now part of a crew. They kind of did their own pirate ship called the Banner Society. We'll talk a little bit about that. He hosts a great podcast called Podcast Ain't Played Nobody. Stephen, welcome back to the show. Good morning. Morning. Where are you calling in from this morning? I am home in Nashville, where I think it is actually colder than Philly. Is that so, right? I well, I don't like, like this at all. No. I don't know how you people live like this. <laughs> You you know you degrees. you went to Ole Miss right, but where did you grow up? Uh, I actually grew up. I believe it or not, I grew up in DC. Oh wow! Um, was, okay, yeah, I'm, but I'm from Georgia. Uh, my dad was an FBI agent, so yeah. I grew up in the Beltway. I see. So you you grew up in Georgia and DC. You 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 went to college in Mississippi. You married, I think, mm-hmm. into a Louisiana family. You live in Nashville. You got, you got South. You got a lot of South on you at this point, right? Yeah, I'm covered. I'm covered. I, yeah. I know somebody in every county and every place. That's, that's only that's only half of a joke, which is sort of how I'm able to do a lot of the reporting that I am on the underbelly and the kind of the the uh, what do we call it now? Not black market, shadow market. Right. I don't know what the politically correct term is. So if yeah. you don't know, Godfrey is his probably best known work. How does it feel to have such a big hit, and then for the rest of your career, for a long time, they're like, well, he's best known for this thing, he, the Bagman article. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm trying not to say that because I don't believe that, but I'm sure. It's okay. I'm sure sometimes it feels that way. So, Absolutely. so a a big a, a big investigative piece on on kind of the underbelly of college football. But let's not talk about that. I want to hear, given especially what you kind of, what where the part of the world you're living and how much attention you pay to this. Can you make sense of what is happening? What do you think the significance of LSU is this year? I'm, I'm wondering, is it just a one-time thing, or is it just something we're supposed to enjoy? Are we going to look back on this 10 years from now and say, that was a substantive change, either a shift of power in the SEC, or that was the beginning of a whole different way of playing football? Or what do you think What do you think the oh, meaning wow. of this moment is? Okay, there's a lot there. Um, I don't think it's a new way of playing football. It's a new way of LSU playing football. 
and I've enjoyed very much uh, the correspondence from the university this fall as we, we, we see all these infographics and memes that come out from their different social media accounts. And then also they send us PR emails where, you know, Joe Burrow, first time in school history that a quarterback is thrown for five touchdowns in a game. That's awesome. But like Texas Tech and Oklahoma State do that right. six to seven times a year and have been doing that for the better part of two decades. So um, LSU found offense much, much in the way that man created fire. And it's been very funny to watch that. Um, objectively, they finally matched up the potential of the top end talent that they can get that maybe only five to 10 programs mm-hmm. in the entire country can get mm-hmm. uh, with a progressive dynamic offensive strategy, which, you know, I know people have embraced Les Miles as sort of a cult icon and, a, and more of a media figure than a coach. But the very serious criticism of his time there was that they played Bo Schembechler sort of bully ball. Right. You know, it was a little bit of a little bit of an old eye form, a little bit of option at, at, at some points. And, you know, I think Gary Danielson mentioned this during the broadcast on Saturday, that it was, I think, Jarvis Landry, Odell Beckham Jr., and I forget the third receiver, were all on the roster starting for LSU when they lost 21 nothing to Alabama in the national title. Unbelievable. And then, also, and then beat them 9-6. to and I was at that game in Tuscaloosa. So the talent's always been there. I actually wrote a piece <clears throat> using recruiting analytics uh, with, with one of my Banner Society guys, Bud Elliott, a long time ago, explaining why recruits would opt into Les Miles' offense at the wide receiver position rather than go somewhere like in Oklahoma State just because of the odds were so much better at getting drafted from that program, even though oh, wow. you were very you were very rarely touching the ball. So uh, I don't think it's a watershed moment in terms of any kind of offensive philosophy. Um, if anything, I, w- I will make a minor note. There's a lot of NFL in this offense, which is actually uh, against the current that we've seen flowing the last couple of years, which well, is the adoption of various different college ideas into the NFL. Right. Stephen, let me jump in and ask you that question, because th- these guys are doing it they're playing offense at a higher level than most teams in most recent years. And so, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering how much of that is because they're finally ma- marrying a good scheme to, to elite talent, as you've said, and how much of it is that they've, that they've hit the next generation of offensive philosophy. It's not just, you know, sp- spread, you know, spread offense or whatever, or, or, or a dual threat quarterback. It's not just that it's, it's bringing Joe Brady in and bringing in some of that advanced stuff from the NFL. Mm-hmm. To what extent are they doing something different and better than even, you know, maybe everybody else other than Lincoln Riley and some teams on the fringes? How much of it is the marriage with talent versus taking it one next generation or half generation in philosophy? It's a li- I mean, it's a little bit of both, and I'm not trying to be ambiguous about it, but I will say that <clears throat> one of the things that's happened in the football culture in the last maybe five years is that we've put down a lot of really, really dumb ideas about the separation between the NFL and the top end of college football. Um, up, I mean, gosh, and I'm, 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 I'm rounding off the numbers here, but if you guys remember the uh, the zone read year where Kaepernick and sure. uh, Alex Smith and, uh, oh gosh, there was one other guy, uh, oh, Russell Wilson. Everybody started running the zone read out of nowhere, right? And it were, they were leaving receivers wide open, and all of a sudden it was just, oh my gosh, what heresy is this from college football that they're, they're putting into the NFL, and it worked. Those teams were very, very successful, extremely successful. I think that was sort of the last gap. I think Sean McVay's ascension is still being felt um, in taking a guy in Jared Goff who ran a traditional Texas air raid at Cal with Sonny Dykes and then turning him into a Super Bowl quarterback. Mm -hmm. Um, There has been a 
there has been an acceptance on both sides of the pro college divide. And also you're seeing, you're just seeing more transition in the, in the off season in the coaching market in offensive mindset between those, those, those two cultures. That's the thing that shocks me. I mean, Steve Sarkeesian going back from college within the NFL, goes back to Alabama. Um, they're just, there isn't a bias anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm, you know, the, the great thing about like talking with you guys and sort of just, just honestly laying everything bare in terms of analytics is, eventually the numbers argued against any sort of preconceived bias that mm-hmm. this won't work. This is a college system. This is a gimmick. This doesn't empower the quarterback. I mean, it was, it was just a few years ago and I don't want to name names where a lot of prominent NFL media were saying that the air raid and the zone read were ruining college football and ruining the NFL. Right. That's what they really cared about. Right. They were making dumb quarterbacks. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So this was a dominant narrative a couple of years ago. And now I don't know what else Lamar Jackson can do to show you all right. that that's not the case. No, just um, ex- exhibit A, exhibit A in, in your in your whole argument here. We're talking to Stephen Godfrey, Stephen, longtime college football writer and observer. He's been with SB Nation for a long time. They've kind of calved off. They're still with SB Nation, but they have a what they call kind of a pirate ship group of college football writers called the Banner Society. Fantastic group to pay attention to, fantastic group to follow on Twitter. They've got an email distribution list we'll talk about here in a little bit. Old school way of staying in touch with college football. He is based in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a co-host of a podcast, great podcast on college football called The Podcast Ain't Played Nobody, Stephen Godfrey. We're talking a little bit with him about LSU and the evolution of offense in college football. Stephen's talking about the, the interchange between the NFL and college. For a long time, NFL held college kind of at bay. In recent years, they've pulled the college folks up into not just the players, but some of the philosophy. And then, of course, LSU demonstrating how they can pull people down from the NFL. Joe Brady coaching the offense there for LSU. Let me let me take a, a, a personal aside here. One of, the, one of my motivations for asking about is this philosophy or talent. You know, Texas hires Tom Herman, who three years ago was the hottest candidate in hell. I mean, LSU was trying to hire Tom Herman that year. He was the yeah. hottest candidate. Supposed to, he's the offensive side of the, of the ball kind of mind. And now Texas fans are sitting around going, hey, have we been lapped? I mean, our, our offense is not exactly looking cutting edge here. What is, is Tom Herman going to be one of these guys who, you know, everyone thought he was all that a few years ago and it's going to turn out to be, well, maybe he's behind or maybe he wasn't what we thought he was. Oh. It, it's possible. I, I don't even want to say it's likely right now because Tom is a ruthless reinventor. Is that um, is that right? That, What's the evidence for that? Tell me about that. What a great quality. That's a great quality in a coach in general, mm-hmm. right? That's yep. kind of what you want. Ed Orgeron Adapt- just did this adaptivity John Harbaugh is doing this. Adaptivity and unpredictability, I think, are two yes. key qualities. Well, I don't want to tip my hand or anything, but I just said he's a ruthless reinventor. I don't think that staff will be the same come the offseason. Okay. Okay. I think I think some of the philosophies. Now I will say, I think he's going to have to adapt in a way that no one else has to, unless you coach in the Big Twelve. Because one of the things that we've seen, you know, once the toothpaste is out in in the, in the Big Twelve, it really does seem like you can't rein in some of these offenses, even when you have elite <laughs> talent. Texas, Texas, just from a talent evaluation standpoint, should be performing better on defense. Yeah, for so sure. A lot of the situations that you've seen them in, and against this LSU team as well. There's an inability to put their offense in a situation in which they can actually use their entire offense the way it's intended. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't realize that when you're down, all football is situational football, right? You're and saying when you're, when you're down, down like, too much, you're playing catch-up, you can't you know, can't run as much as you'd sure. like to run. Yeah. If you can't but run, then it hurts your pass. Even, even when you're down 10, 
you know, even when you're down 10 in the second quarter, that's going to dramatically affect yeah. how you how you call plays. Even if you're down seven, you know, yeah. going, you know, right before the half. So playing tight, playing under one score differential, and then also playing, uh, you know, tied or with a lead allows your offense to do a lot more than I think um, – you know what you would do playing catch up, especially in the Big Twelve, because you're just going to be throwing the ball excessively. I'm simplifying a lot of this, but that's yeah. the truth. But Stephen, does um, that does that mean that you need to if if you have an offensive philosophy that is too rigid, you have to be able to play a certain way in order to succeed? Then you're sometimes not going to be able to play. So yeah, that's true. That's yeah. Okay. And maybe maybe that's characteristic of most coaches. I don't know. But we were looking at some stats on some quarterbacks, for example. This this neat neat result that came out of Pro Football Focus last week. Where they looked at quarterbacks who dialed up, like they they threw deeper when they were behind versus when they were when they were ahead. And some quarterbacks kind of played the same regardless of the game situation. But then these elite quarterbacks, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, they were very sensitive to the situation. They dialed it up whenever they were further behind. That's a that's a quarterback example. But I wonder if there it's kind of a. I mean, I'm coming at it from a Longhorn fan where it looks like Herman's got a philosophy, and if his personnel doesn't fit the philosophy, then he's kind of screwed. And if the game situation doesn't fit the philosophy, then he's kind of screwed. And that's doesn't seem like a great way to coach. I think he's. I really do think this is a watershed. I, I, I use watershed twice. I'll, let me revise. Uh, this is a turning point for for him going into this off season. I don't know now. This I think a lot of what I'm saying depends on if they win out or not, which they should. To be honest, they really should. Talent wise, really Iowa How State Baylor. Saying this about Texas, I know, I know. Well, he's finally got more talent than he's had in the past. But so I, I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll take a little bit of hope from your suggestion that he's a reinventor. Yeah. And let me ask about the broader field because we've. We've really been blown away this year by how different it's playing out than people expected. Last year was maybe the chalkiest of all chalky years in college football, and people were worried that we've moved into this kind of chalk era, and everybody was certain we could just pencil Clemson and Alabama into the playoff, if not into the national championship. And yet we turn around, and we've had this you know, broad field at the top. We've got five, six teams, and now we have the emergence of a second tier that's kind of more interesting than we thought. What what has been what's your take on that field? And do you think this is a, a blip, or do you think this is where we are now? Do you think Alabama and Clemson's ascendancy has been kind of leveled up? What's your what's your thinking? I think that uh, there is a an invisible line that's been created uh, in the last three or four years, and I'm not sure why it hit exactly when it did. I think it was um, I think programs evaluated what the playoff culture would look like. And then I think spending, uh, you know, I think the most important advanced analytic in college football right now is spending, is, is, is budget. Really? Um, what, in what, on, what, on what, Stephen? Well, Clemson won two national titles, and they've done it using a very distinct system that a lot of people are trying to emulate. Uh, and that is essentially the CEO with two head coaches as coordinators that are making a million five plus, if not more, sometimes okay. closer to two. Okay. Um, obviously, Brent Venable staying at, at Clemson is a great example. Yeah. This Chad Morris, until he was fired this week, staying at Clemson for years. This created an, a, a lot of attention in college football. Um, and people were skeptical of it. It, it. it feels like forever ago, but Dabo was an interim head coach, a position, a position coach that took over for a mediocre program. It's amazing. And I think one of his genius moves was knowing what he didn't know mm-hmm. and coming in and saying, look, I'm going to be an effective, ruthless force in recruiting, fundraising, and program management. I'm going to find the cutting edge of both offense and defense, mm-hmm. and I'm going to operate as if financially and, and sort of culturally we are a top-tier SEC program. So, mm-hmm. how do, so how has that trickled down into what I'm saying? Look at LSU. LSU arrived to the point that they're at right now as the best team in the country. 
because they found the right two coordinators. They mm-hmm. found, identified, hung on to Dave Aranda. Dave Aranda stayed through. I mean, Ed, Ed Orgeron will tell you his biggest recruit when he went from interim to head coach was keeping Dave Aranda on the staff. Right. He was he was pushing when he went in to interview for the head job. He told the entire assemblage that I'm going to hire Lane Kiffin. That was the pitch at the time. Hmm. Lane Kiffin, as it, I mean, this is I don't even this isn't really gossip anymore. I've written about this. Lane Kiffin was helped to the FAU job by people from Alabama. Okay. Okay. No one wanted. No one in, in Tuscaloosa wanted Lane Kiffin calling plays for I LSU. See. I see. Them, okay. Right. So what happens then? Matt Canada's hired, and it's a terrible fit, both mm-hmm. in terms of of the. The personnel, the actual football stuff, and then off field, it's even worse. And that, and, that but Canada was like the splashy. Back. He was one of the splashiest OCs out there. Are candidates, right? Absolutely. And now he now and now he has no job. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was this big, big sort of thing in, in the gossipier parts of college football. Is this an Ed Orgeron problem? Or is this a Matt Canada problem? Right. So flash forward, and Ed Orgeron goes and recruits Joe Joe Brady away from the Saints. Now they have innovative uh, offensive and defensive minds. You, I mean, I, the reports coming out of Baton Rouge is they are about to uh, compensate Joe Brady to the point in which he would not. It would not make sense for him to take a head coaching job. That's a, he's not even a coordinator. It's crazy. Well, he I mean, he's a de facto good. coordinator. Steven Zwinger is a good soldier. You know, he's a native son. He's well loved in that area. Okay. He's a good friend to Ed Orgeron, and okay. also he's one of the most selfless people I've seen okay. in the offensive coaching world. Because most of those guys have huge egos, and I really think and he's a company man. Um, he's happy where he's at. He's sort of good financially, and he's okay. been rewarded accordingly. But it's it's Joe Brady's offense. I mean, you can call out plays, especially third down pass situations that are part and parcel from the Saints. Right. And it's not. It's not. The, now I will say this about Inzinger. I was there the first week that they took over after Miles was fired, and and Inzinger's first idea was the right one, which was, why don't we stretch the field with all this talent and pass to set up the run, mm-hmm. which was sort of heresy under the Miles. Right. So he's not a Luddite by any stretch Got it. at all. Stephen, can you give us just a little bit more backstory on Brady? If, if, if Orgeron was at SC, if he was doing everything that he's doing at LSU, but he was in Los Angeles instead. I mean, he, they could have had him. Would would he have had the connection, or flip it around? Was if Joe Brady was in New England instead of New Orleans? Was there anything to the proximity between Brady and Orgeron that led to that relationship? They have a, they have a good relationship with the Saints. Um, I think that Ed was. I mean, because of the situation with Canada, Ed was Ed never really stopped recruiting and evaluating for finding an offensive play caller. And I think the proximity to the Saints was a good thing. Um, but it wasn't necessarily – I don't think that would have kept or stopped uh, him from recruiting him to a place like USC okay. at all. Okay. I think it really comes down to when you're a play caller and you're trying to establish yourself, Tom Herman's another example, right? He, he got the Houston job, which got him the Texas job by being a dynamic play caller at Ohio State. He did that because look at the talent that he had on that Ohio State team. Right. You know, right. I covered both of those playoff games. That, you know, he, he, was, he put himself in the best position possible to become a head coach. I think Joe Brady kind of thought the same way. Just to circle back to the bigger point, we were talking about this division of teams. Yep. If you can spend like this and do what we're talking about, where you're essentially recruiting three head coaches, and you then you are recruiting athletes at, at the highest caliber with the most amount of money, then that's the separation. So I think you're actually going to see a redundancy. If we keep a four-team model, I think you're going to see these seven or eight teams just constantly <laughs> trading places. Mm-hmm. Constantly. Mm-hmm. Ohio State, Oklahoma, LSU, Alabama, I'm rattling them off the top of my head. Georgia's on the periphery right now. 
Um, and then you go out west and there's an absence. And that's sort of the thing that's felt the most. You have Texas right outside of that, at least financially, and they're trying to put it together faster. You have another program like Michigan outside of it trying to put it together and figure out, right. well, we have everything we need on paper. Then maybe in an odd year you have Notre Dame breakthrough. Um, I think the difference there when I talk to people is that Notre Dame would spend and act and recruit coaches and do everything that you know Clemson and LSU are doing. They just have a talent and, and play calling gap when right. it comes to those top teams. I mean, you, you saw it against Clemson last year. Right, right, right. Listen, we're down to about 30 seconds, which is an absurd amount of time to give you for this question, but I'm curious. You just said if we stay with the four-team format, is there anything, any chance that this year, because there's there's some chance that you know three, four teams have a good argument for that four spot, is there any chance that we're going to p- bump one step closer towards an eight-team playoff? I think we're I think we're headed there anyway. I think eventually you might have a, a class action, or a class an antitrust lawsuit, uh, mm-hmm. especially if the American Athletic Conference keeps making noise the way they are. Mm-hmm. Inevitably, I think we're marching towards automatic bids for P5 champions plus uh, one bid for the G5 at large, which I think is is totally fair. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's totally fair, it's sure. totally right, because right sure. now the biggest lie in college football is that this playoff is open to everybody. It's right. not. It's open right. to about forty teams. Right, right, right. All right, listen, Stephen, really appreciate your taking the time to be with us. Love what you're doing. Always love the Banner Society stuff. I mean, I I love the old school email distribution from the Banner Society. It's one of my favorite things in the inbox <laughs> each week. So keep up, keep up all the good work. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. Stephen Godfrey, longtime SB Nation sports journalist focusing on college football, best known for his Bagman article from, I don't know, 10 years ago or so now, co-host of Podcast Ain't Play Nobody. He is a fantastic follow on Twitter as well. Stephen Godfrey calling in from Nashville, Tennessee. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane Jensen. We've lost our two collaborators. Audie Weiner slipped up the classroom. Eric Bradlow slipped out to the classroom. But we will be here for the next hour. You guys can join in and be here with us. Give us a shout, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or email us, businessradio at com, Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is our handle there. We're interested in what you're thinking about. If you've got questions about any of the sports going on right now, we've been talking college football just off the phone with Stephen Godfrey down in Nashville. Rolling into this half hour, Michael Lombardi. Delighted to have Michael back on the show. Michael is an NFL insider for The Athletic. He's also the host of the GM Shuffle podcast. You can follow him on Twitter, at MLombardiNFL. He's the author of a recently published book called Gridiron Genius and a longtime executive from the front offices around the NFL. Michael, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning. Hope all you guys are well. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Where are you calling in from this morning? Well, this morning I am on the road. I'm up in New York City. I've got a couple meetings in the city that I had to take, but uh, typically I live in a little beach town called Ocean City, New Jersey. We're familiar. We're familiar. It's just around the corner. This is one of the reasons we want to get you in here in studio one of these days. We know you were in for the the Wharton Sports Business Summit last last week. We're delighted to have you around and participating in that, and we hope we get you back here in studio one of these days. But we're we're glad for your time this morning, taking a break from your New York City work. 
Tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about the NFL season. It's been a fun one, and in some ways it feels like it's getting, you know, usually this time of year things start clarifying. And it feels a little bit like it's going the other direction right now, that there are more teams in play, and the ones that we thought were clearly the best aren't quite as clearly the best. And so how are you thinking about what you're seeing in the NFL so far this season? You know, I think like anything, I think it's really a – it's it's a it's it's a it's a war of attrition the NFL and it really comes down to the basic fundamentals pad level the teaching of pad level the teaching of conditioning the mental toughness that goes on within the season and I think that we live in a generation that we tend to have this word called load management you know where we take things back and I think you're seeing that the teams that have kind of built themselves for the final run will be the ones who make the difference between now. And there's so many teams within a pack, especially in the NFC. So hold on, Mike, Michael, let me, let me, what, what were you saying about load management? Are you, are you, are you saying it's a, a helpful thing or not a helpful thing? Is it a soft coddling thing or is it like cutting edge? I, I think it's, I think it's a little bit of a coddling thing. I think you have to develop mental toughness. Mental toughness is a, is a, is a muscle just like your, your bicep that you've got to develop it. And I think you've got to be careful with players' bodies but you also have to develop the mental toughness because I think football is a game of mental toughness, and it's a game that goes into the fourth quarter. And I think what we're seeing from a lot of these teams and why there's such inconsistency is when you get into that fourth quarter, there's some teams that can only play for 55 minutes and all of a sudden they wilt. And I think you always wonder, is it because of the players, the scheme, or the coaching? And I think sometimes it really comes down to mental toughness. I think it's something you've got to develop along the way. And I, and I think that you have to be very careful of understanding that as a football team, you can't lose sight of that. That's it's super interesting, and I can imagine there is a trade-off between you know too much too too much concern about load management does presumably take the edge off of the mental toughness. But, but at the same time, I mean injuries are this thing that we've thought was the frontier for a long time. Not just you know analytics, but like sports science and you know strength and conditioning. And how do we prevent injuries? And so it does feel like there's a trade-off here between okay, we can get some sense of when to back off of a guy. How do we do that? without reducing his like willingness to play when things are really tough and and and, and hurting his mental toughness. And can can you kind of make this a little bit more tangible like are there a couple teams you can kind of point out that are sort of on the that you sort of see as at the opposite ends of the spectrum here because I think you're kind of talking about like it's a a, col- a team culture type thing as opposed to something I mean obviously it it, it, it you know every individual is different but you you're you're clearly suggesting that there's maybe some cultural differences between teams on this. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's a cultural thing. I definitely think there's sometimes, and I think the head coach kind of loses a little bit of the control. I think that you know, let's just take the Patriots. They've won, they've over the last five years they've won 81 games. The next closest team to them, I believe, is Kansas City. Not adding in last week's games, I think they had 61. They're a 20, they're a 20 win. They've lapped the field essentially, and yet every Wednesday and Thursday they go over and run hills. And they nobody really has time off. Brady will take a Wednesday practice off. Belichick has a feel for what he thinks he needs to give his team, when to rest, when not to. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily always scientific. I think when you look at the team like the Chargers and you say, why do they have so many injuries? Or the Redskins, why do they have so many injuries? And the first thing you always see when about those teams is we've got to make sure we get to the season healthy. Well, football's a game like boxing. If you don't spar so many rounds before you get ready to fight, you're going to lose the fight. Mm -hmm. And so you've got there's a balance here. And and, and I'm not anti the sports science. What I, what I believe is there's got to be a balance. It's not one thing for all and all for one. Mm-hmm. And I think you'll see this. I think the Browns are the perfect example of a team that has too many too many fingers in the pie that are coaching the team 
And then at the, the end of the result, the fourth quarter, they can't quite make it back into the game. Is it the fault of the head coach or is it the lack of leadership from the head coach? That's what it appears to from the outside. I think internally it might be more than that. So, Michael, we're always up for talking about the Browns around here. Tell us, tell us more. I mean, they're a fun team to pull against if you're on the analytics side because they built out this you know, pretty incredible analytics group. And then they kind of tossed it aside when they went with a with a GM who just doesn't value that kind of thing. And so, and then they, you know, their quarterback is a is an Oklahoma Sooner. So it gives me one more reason to pull against them. But <laughs> well, I, I think a lot of it starts with the leadership of the owner, right? I think what you have to do with an owner is, you know, what owners need to understand is they need to create stability, right? That's the number one thing an owner needs. Well, the number one thing an owner needs to have is common sense, right? A <laughs> good place stability. to start. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, stability. Really I'm sure. Okay. Let's have common sense. Yep. Let's then create stability. Let's believe in the people that we've hired. Let's preserve the pride, right? And the fifth thing is care more than anything. Let's just take the Browns, right? They've got a really good guy in J- Jimmy Haslam. He owns Pilot Flying J. But Jimmy Haslam can't create stability because he listens to too many people, mm-hmm. right? He listens to too many people. And anybody that tells you, that they don't listen to analytics and they're in the information business, then just dismiss what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Like we can debate whether the information that we're getting is valuable or not, but we can't debate that information is the job that I do. As a general manager, you are in the information business. Mm-hmm. That's what your job is, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to collect as much information. Now, how you sort that data and how you come across it, that's all debatable. We can go through it. What's important and what's not important, what does factor into winning and what doesn't. But I think what happens when you're just taking all this information in, you don't use common sense and you don't create stability. And I think that's the ultimate problem with the Cleveland Browns. I mm-hmm. mean, if the Browns would have just read Jim Collins's book, Good to Great, they would have eliminated most of their problems going into the season. If they just read one book, what what is it from? Just read that. What is it from that book? It's Collins's first big book. What is it from that book that you think they're missing? Well, the number one thing is is they had to keep the ranks close within. You can't let your egos get bigger than that. You have to understand that that people are going to come to you and ask you for you know their, their expectations. How you manage those expectations are so dramatically important, right? The other thing is, is as the general manager of the team, I would have talked to Baker Mayfield and said, look, Baker, the, the sky's the limit here, but let's win first before we do 75 progressive commercials. Like, <laughs> yeah. I know it's important for you, but, like, let's have this conversation in here. Like, I know your agent wants to make 10% off of, or 25% off of all your marketing deals. I get that. But what's really important is us winning. And so- if you can't take that and focus it from good to great, we're never going to get great until we get good. Yeah. And I think they really missed the load on that. Yeah, they kind of got it. I mean, everyone got ahead of themselves on the Browns, but then the team seems to have gotten ahead of it of itself. But can, can tell us, you know, you've been you've you've been in, in lot on lots of teams and you've been general managers and you know, this is the kind of thing that we think someone might do in a team. Sit down with a player and say, "Hey, maybe don't do all the endorsements yet." Do those conversations happen and do they ever happen productively or are able are people able to rein in egos and and endorsement deals in that way? I think you have to. I think, you know, look, I, I tell this story all the time about uh, you, you're going to have to have uncomfortable conversations. You know, the great leaders, the great leaders of, of any sport, of any industry, you know, uh, uh, never take the path of least resistance. And I tell this story. I told it to the to the Wharton School the other day when I spoke. I tell it, it's about Lucille Ball, and I love Lucy. And Lucy's in her bedroom, and she drops her wedding ring on the floor in her bedroom. And she naturally jumps down on the floor, and she starts looking for it. Two scenes later, for anybody who is too young to remember, I love Lucy. They had this two-bedroom, they had this really small apartment in Manhattan, 
And Ricky, her husband, walks in the front door. He sees Lucy on the floor of the living room crawling around trying to find something. He says, hey, Lucy, what are you doing? She said, I lost my wedding ring. I'm on the floor looking for it. He said, oh, really? Where'd you lose it? She said, I lost it in the bedroom. And Ricky said, well, why, do you, why are you looking in the living room? She said, because the light's better out here. <laughs> the light's better out here. That's, what, that's, as, that's when, you don't have, when you don't have a conversation with a player or an agent over something that's really important. You're looking for the wedding ring in the, bed, in the, in the, in the living room, not in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. You don't want to have a tough conversation. And part of being a leader is having those conversations. You know, we are in a society in the NFL. Think about this. You guys are numerical people. To become a head NFL coach or general manager, it's a harder job to get than a United States senator, right? It's a harder job to get. And like a United States senator, it becomes an elected position, not selected. You have to win the press conference to become one of those. You necessarily don't win it on merit or experience. You have to win it on your ability to win the press conference. Joe Douglas comes from the Eagles, never been a general manager before. He might be great. I'm, not, I'm using him as an example. He might be tremendous. However, that being said, that being said, you know, he's made no mistakes, so he's perfect for the press conference. But don't you want somebody who's made mistakes, who understands how it's been through it? and where you can avoid the pitfalls, mm-hmm. I think that's why the NFL has such an imbalance. And I think that really comes back to the theory of why Belichick has 81 wins and the next co- closest competition is 61. And it's not just because of Tom Brady. Well, I mean, except I think there's sort of a positive feedback loop here that basically happens. I mean, Belichick is able to sustain the success because everybody will listen to him because he's had that past success. So you, you come back to the Browns, and, you know, somebody like Freddie Kitchens, he's, he's, he's new to the scene. He doesn't necessarily I, – I don't know how he would have the kind of gravitas to kind of pull Baker Mayfield aside and be the one to be like, hey, you know, in my experience or whatever, you shouldn't be doing so many endorsements. You need to focus on the on the field, whatever. Um, so I, I feel like how – I, I guess the question is sort of when you're not Bill Belichick and you don't have these decades of – kind of legacy to call upon how do you kind of enforce that gravitas how do how do you how do you get a player to buy in when you yourself are kind of basically about as new to the scene as the player is i i think you have to the organization has to stand with you and i think you're right i mean freddie doesn't have the but freddie's been around bill parcells he's been around really good people and he understands that you got to control the environment you got to talk to the players every single day when you walk into the patriots building they have a sign that says do your job Put the team first, be attentive, and speak for yourself. They're the only four rules, and that's the only sign in the building, right? And so somebody's – and Belichick's job every morning is to maintain those four rules. Well, if you're Freddie Kitchens, if you're Jimmy Haslam, again, common sense, you know, create stability. You've got, to have a, you've got to have an organization that stands for something. Here's what I want. Here's what I believe. You know, David Tepper is one of the greatest hedge fund owners of all time. I have a feeling the Carolina Panthers will get to this. Once he's done examining where everything's going, I think he'll get to that. Mm-hmm. You need that from an ownership group. That's what makes teams successful. And so when you're – Freddie alone can't do it, but the organization can do it. And when the organization stands united and has been created by stability, you can then have that conversation. Well, let's let's contrast that with a very – what's seemingly a stable organization. John Harbaugh has been one of the longest – maybe the third or fourth longest reigning current coaches in the NFL – and yet they, they shifted philosophies, offensive philosophies, pretty dramatically as they moved from Flacco to Jackson. What, what are your thoughts on the, on the Ravens, and, how, and what do you think has allowed them to perform so well in such a different way? And what can you tell us about that organization? 
Well, there's a great quote by Mark Twain in, in the old Yankee. He says, the greatest swordsman in the world never fears the second best swordsman. He always fears the unconventional swordsman. And sometimes being unconventional really works, right? And so the Ravens realized that if they were going to continue down the path of the West Coast offense without a West Coast quarterback, they were going to be mediocre. So they had to change their thinking. They didn't become creative. They became divergent in thought. And so they decided to draft this kid who was really a dynamic player at Louisville. He's the last quarterback picked in the draft. And all those people that talk about, you know, you've got a tank to have a great pick, really, this, 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 this proves that it takes talent to evaluate talent, right? Mm-hmm. You've got to see the talent. And this kid had a unique talent at Louisville. He had unique talent. To, he was faster than anybody. I watched every game. My son coached at Louisville. I was a, the biggest Lamar Jackson fan because no, really? I witnessed it. Uh-huh. I witnessed it in person, right? And so, but you had to be able to say to yourself, we must be willing to change. We've got to change what we do offensively because he's not conventional. He's not. And tip your hat to Baltimore. And look, tip your hat to Steve Bashotti, who sat in the draft room as the Ravens were trading around, picking Hunter Hayden and all these other guys, Bashadi's the one who said, hey, fellas, why don't we just get this quarterback and see what we got? And he, that's when they did it. So you're going, you're, going, credit. you're going back to the owner. Steve Bashadi's the owner of the Ravens, and you've just been talking about the importance of that. That is kind of the question. is like why, you know, they're, Ravens are one of 32 teams. They literally drafted Lamar Jackson 32nd. Any team could have done this. Any team could play this divergent strategy. What, what, if you want to give them credit, why do you think it was that they were able to take this strategy that nobody else did? Because I, I think they have an owner. I think, you know, part of when you become a billionaire, you've had a little bit of a divergent gene in your blood, right? You've got that entrepreneurial spirit, right? And, you, and, and they're not afraid to fail. Most of the team, most scouts, when they, look, when they graded Lamar Jackson, they grade him because they're scared to fail. You know, well, he's not conventional. They can't put him in a box. Sometimes we can't put everybody into a box. Mm-hmm. You've got to think outside the box. Bill Walsh used to say to me all the time, if we're all thinking alike, no one's thinking. Mm-hmm. And he was right, you know. And so you got to, I think sometimes the owner drives that by the way he's made his fortune, the way he's made his billions. I take my hat off to him in Baltimore. I mean, it's really good. And what they've done a great job of is what I've said all along is, and this is another Walshism, is quarterbacks are like baseball stadiums. You've got to tailor your team to the strength of the quarterback, mm-hmm. right? You've got to tailor your team to what he does really well. And that's what the Ravens have done. Well, it takes a it takes a fair bit of humility to I mean, adaptability yeah, so, one, yeah, but also no. humility, right? And, and also, it's impressive. I think that you know, I mean, this is Baltimore, which is this uh, franchise that for most of Harbaugh's time there, in fact, for most of the time, you know, for the last thirty years, they've been a very defense first team, and to kind of even change the philosophy where you you know, I mean, they're now now they're kind of you know they're 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 putting. I mean, they still have a good defense. Let's be serious, but like you know, the the, the, the emphasis is so much more on the offense. And I mean, yeah, I, I kind of see that also in Seattle too. I think Seattle is a very intriguing team because Seattle is a very good team, very competitive, but not in the way that we've we're used to seeing Seattle be competitive, where they've got this, you know, kind of amazing defense, and and Russell Wilson, you know, is is, is just kind of like complementing that. Now it's built entirely around Russell Wilson, mm-hmm. right? And I think this, I think you know, you guys, this is an analytical show. I, I've said this numerous times on my podcast, on 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 when I write. The way the NFL has set up the rules today, and it's really taken away some of the ability of coaches to play great defense, the best way to play great defense is to play less defense. Mm-hmm. Play less defense. Keep them off and the, the field. Ravens, 
the Ravens are number one on third down in the National Football League. They're number one on time of possession. So even though their defense has liability in it, they are still able to play less defense. And that's the key to football today, playing less defense. Going into the season this year, the, the, the Cowboys were 9-0 and when they played less than 30 minutes of defense. It's the key to football. And so what does that mean? That means you have to orchestrate your offense so that you can keep it on the field, that you want to, as John Wooden said, you know, go fast but don't hurry up. You know, it's that whole thing. You've got to play with the tempo. I think it's one of the reasons why Alabama lost to LSU. Nick Saban doesn't understand, or that's probably the wrong terminology, but <laughs> right. he can't win it. He can't win a he can't win a he's not been able to win a shootout. He needs to control the pace of the game. Right. It's one of the problems. It's one of the problems with the Kansas City Chiefs with Andy Reid, controlling the pace of the game, being able to take those thirty seconds off the play clock, being able to slow the game down, hmm. slow it down, mm-hmm. and understanding mm-hmm. when your clock is as much as your opponent. That's critical. Because if we just think our defense is going to win the game for us, we're not watching football in the 21st century. Right, right. We're talking to Michael Lombardi. Michael is an NFL insider for The Athletic. He's also the host of the GM Shuffle podcast and a great follow on Twitter, at M. Lombardi NFL, at M. Lombardi NFL. Michael, of course, is a longtime front office exec, including times as a general manager. He's the co- He's the author, he's sole author of a, of a recent book called Gridiron genius michael we're talking about coaches here and there and you know as you've mentioned we're an analytics show so analytics are generally focused on on field stuff and player evaluation but there's kind of this frontier on the side that's slowly emerging analytics for coaching evaluation you've been involved with many coaching searches how do you think about evaluating who you want to bring in you know we've been talking about cleveland they brought in kitchens that was a big important hire this is one of the most important things that general managers and owners do. How do you think about that coaching search, and what do you look for in evaluating coaches? Well, I think the number one thing you have to build is you got to find a leader, right? I think we get, we're get too caught up in guys looking down at these play sheets, and they're not paying attention to the game. You need a leader. You need somebody who can lead the entire organization and give the team its personality through its coaching. That's what, you know, John Harbaugh's a special teams coach. You know, the Ravens, even though – accurately said earlier in this conversation we're more of a defensive team but yet they're still tough minded it gets it from their head coach right you got to find a leader a guy who's good in all four tangents of leadership and i wrote about this in gridiron genius you got to find somebody who's got a plan now it can't just be a plan for offense and oh by the way i'm going to hire a good defensive coach you got to have a foundation of what you believe the game should be offensive defensively and in the kicking game and then you've got to be able to communicate that plan. And then you've got to be able to adhere to the process. And you can't avoid confrontation. You've got to be able to look where it's not always the lights the brightest, right? And then you've got to be able to be true to yourself, admit your mistakes, and grow and have a growth mindset and be adaptable. Like Pete Carroll changes what he's doing just because he needs to. So I think you're looking for that. I think oftentimes we tend to pigeonhole, I want to hire this offense. I think it's really the reason why seven coaches are getting fired every single year, because the process is wrong. We're looking for the wrong things. We need culture builders in the NFL. We don't need a new offensive scheme. So you're right? definitely indicting some recent hires, and we can name we can name the names, but certainly a very high profile. Heck, Texas Tech fires their coach, longtime coach. They fire him. And then the Cardinals hire him as a full-time NFL coach, mostly based on his offensive prowess, his offensive play-calling ability. And then potentially exactly. uh, ch- draft a number one draft pick based yeah. on that yeah. same and philosophy. They do. 
Right. I mean, look, let's face it. The Josh Rosen pick, you know, we can debate whether that was a good that, – that was not a good pick. I mean, you know, he was picked in front of Lamar Jackson. Just say Jackson – just say Steve Kime, the general manager of, of the Cardinals, would have stayed where he was, didn't trade a third-round pick to trade up to get Rosen and picks Lamar Jackson. He might not be going through all these changes today. See, it's just one move that always causes – yeah, I am indicting this wave of Zach Taylor because he had an association with Sean McVay – for two years, you know, Zach Taylor, when he was the offensive coordinator at the University of Cincinnati, their offense was 106th in the country. Like, I'm, what I'm saying is, I think we got this all wrong. We got it all. We need leaders. You know, there used to be a time where where Tom Landry was facing off against Bill Parcells and Jimmy Johnson against Joe Gibbs. I mean, this is a this is a league of leaders. So, Michael, lost that. Michael, we we were talking in the last half hour with Stephen Godfrey about on the college football side how. That's kind of a, the model Clemson gives us is is Dabo Sweeney as 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 leader, and he hires the best talent for the coordinator side of things. And one could follow that model in the NFL. I'm sure we have some examples of it in the NFL where you set the culture and the tone through the head coach, and then if you want the clever play column, you do it, but you do it through the offensive coordinator. Is that is that a model that you'd advocate? I would certainly. I, to me, I think like Cleveland, for example, Cleveland d- doesn't need a, a unique play caller. Cleveland needs a culture. They don't have a culture there. Yeah. They don't have a culture. There, and you're not going to. You're you're not going to beat Bill Belichick to win the AFC without. You're, you're not going to out talent him because you got to out culture him. You're how, not going to do it. How long does it, you, Michael? You 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 focus on culture. This is one of the main drums that you beat. How long would it take an organization to build? a culture that was strong enough to make a difference on the field. So if you, if you, if they had, you know, if you could have driven the process in Cleveland beginning last year with their head coaching search from year zero, how long until there was a culture there that, that conveyed a true advantage on the field? Well, I think once you, once you, how many veteran players you have that buy into the culture, it shouldn't take, it takes a year and a half at the most. I mean, look at Miami, look at Miami, the ESPN, had a show when they played Pittsburgh. Steve Young, Hall of Fame player, tremendous human being, is ripping the Miami Dolphins, saying it's unfair for what they're doing for their players by putting them in harm's way when they're losing and tanking. Mm-hmm. Now, that was the most unfair comment of anybody because the, if you watch tape the week before, two weeks before, they had Buffalo almost beat. They lost. They threw an interception to the goal line. They lose to Buffalo by 10, but it was an onside kick that got returned for a touchdown. They're in that game in Buffalo. They're a two-point play away from beating the Redskins. They're at halftime. If they don't blow the call in the halftime of the Pittsburgh, they gave Pittsburgh all they could handle. The next week they come back and beat the Jets. And, oh, by the way, they beat the, beat the Colts. You can see Brian Flores' culture starting to take shape in Miami. Now, they're no good. They're no good. Don't get me wrong. They're not very good at all, right? But you yeah. can see their culture taking shape. Well, it, it is. It is. That's a. That's a. I like that analysis. I haven't been paying enough attention to how they've done what they've done, but it's certainly surprising given the tank for Tua thing that was talked about from I don't know no, January it, last year yeah, that it, they've been able to do as well as they have. And it does seem Brian Flores has impressed me over the last few weeks because he really does seem like you know through coaching and certainly not through personnel on the field that he's really kind of turned their that team around in terms of winning. I just it confuses me too because I don't know what that organization is really trying to do now. I mean. I kind of feel like tanking. You either got to commit to it or you d- don't. And I, I, I mean, well, they certainly well, looked like they were committed Lamar to it. Jackson was the was the fifth quarterback picked in a five quarterback race, and, and yet you know that even though you tank, it still comes down to evaluation, right? It still comes down to picking the right player, whether you have the first pick or the eighth pick. It comes down to evaluation, and you can't really tank 
I mean, I'm, a, I'm agreeing. Collect all the assets you want. More draft picks, more draft picks. I think you're right. However, that being said, you still need to have a foundation of a culture because when these kids come in, they can't come into a losing culture and then all of a sudden nothing matters. It's got to go simultaneously, and I think what they're doing is the right thing. It, it, I think it's very clear. It's remarkable that in spite of what the front office has done down there, moving players, seemingly seemingly thinking, despite that, the coaches and the players have been motivated enough and, and, and able and able to perform as well as they've had. So you're talking about evaluation. That's just in the time that we have left. One last question for you. Probably the toughest evaluation gig and one of the most important evaluation gigs in sports. How do you evaluate quarterbacks? And in particular, how do you separate a quarterback's performance from all the other factors that influence it, pro or con? So the offensive line, the quality of the receivers, the the dynamics of the running backs, the scheme that he's played, the coaches that are around him. How do you how do you in a system that is so interdependent as that? figure out whether a guy is going to be good when you see him in college. I think past performance predicts future achievement. I mean, if I came home and told my wife, who just common sense, I said, look, we're going to draft a quarterback that wasn't offered a scholarship by Ohio State, wanted him to play free safety. He went to North Carolina. He couldn't start for three years. He started one year, didn't play well against the highest level of comp. We're going to draft him instead of drafting a kid who started four years of high school football, started four years of Clemson, beat Alabama, won a national champion, set all world records. She would look at me and say, you're an idiot. Mm -hmm. She would look at me and say, you're an idiot. But that's what the Bears did. They drafted Mitchell Trubisky. When you're evaluating quarterbacks, past performance predicts future achievement. You've got to understand what the quarterback is. Walsh used to say the hardest, the hardest, the, very few people can coach the quarterback, even fewer can evaluate him. You've got to understand timing and anticipation. It's a crib thing. There's certain quarterbacks that can't let the ball go unless the receiver's open. In college, you get away with it. In pro, you can't. And so you've got to understand the dynamics. You've got to understand the rhythm, the timing of the game. And then you've got to also understand the character of the person. Is he the hardest worker on the team? Will he lead the team? Can you set the culture around him? Will people gravitate to him? When he gets in the huddle, do people listen and look at him in the eye? Those are important factors, and those are the things you've got to really determine. Of those qualities you just ran through, Michael, I'm sure that some talent evaluators are better at assessing some of those qualities than others. When, when you think about your past success or failures in judging quarterback candidates, where do you think you've done well and where do you think you've been weaker? Well, I've, you know, I think where I've been weaker is when I, you don't know enough about the player. We drafted a kid in, in, in Oakland called Andrew Walter, had all the tangibles. He just didn't have enough of a competitive drive in him. Hmm. I think you, one of the biggest mistakes we make in all evaluations is understanding the character of the player, mm-hmm. the competitive drive. You know, does this, is it mean more to this player than anybody? Off the field. Look, Johnny Manziel had enough talent to play in the NFL. He didn't have the character to play in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Garoppolo has had the character. He had everything going for him in that draft. When we picked him in New England, he was ideal because if you broke down his background, even though he played at Eastern Illinois, he was a dynamic player at the level of competition. And when he rose to the level, what people don't understand oftentimes when they're evaluating quarterback is don't watch every game. I don't want to hear this stuff on TV. You know, I've watched 86 games on this quarterback. I'm not watching Tui play Mississippi State. They don't cover anybody at Mississippi State. Like, that's not a game to evaluate. Mm -hmm. That's a game to watch. But I'll watch Tui against LSU. I'm going to watch Mm -hmm. Tui against Georgia. It's mm-hmm. level of comp that really helps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Listen, appreciate you taking the time to be with us, Michael. Appreciate the work that you're doing. Wish you the best with it. Gridiron, Gridiron Genius and your podcast. Best of luck with all that. Thank you. Absolutely. Michael Lombardo, longtime front office executive in the NFL. He is the author of Gridiron Genius. He's the 
he's the host of the GM Shuffle podcast, and you can follow him on Twitter at M Lombardi NFL at M Lombardi NFL. That was Michael Lombardi calling in this morning from New York City. That is three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning. 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Kate Massey hosting this morning with my buddy, longtime colleague and collaborator on Wharton Moneyball, Shane Jensen, stats prof here at the Wharton School. We are down to two for the last half hour. You guys can jump in. We can be three. You guys can give us a ring, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Email us, businessradio at com or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. Just off the phone with Michael Lombardi. Before that, off the phone with Stephen Godfrey. Good fun talking about football, talking college football, talking pro football. I could have those conversations. I could just go for hours having those yeah. conversations. Just, those guys, you know, really have their ears to the ground. Um, they've been in the industry for a long time. They're, this is what they do. This is what they do 12 months a year. And so it's always fun to hear a little bit about what they're thinking. And it's an exciting time of the season. I mean, I mean, you were so, yeah, I, I thought you made a really kind of fun comment in the, in the first half hour where you sort of talked about how typically we get to this point in the NFL season and things start actually clarifying because schedules start balancing and stuff like that. Uh, the wheat starts separating from the chafe. Except this year, it seems, you know, I mean, I, I guess we've got a few an, enough sort of surprises out there that I think, you know, if anything, we've kind of increased our uncertainty over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I, I 100% agree, and it is it is fun. I, I don't know why, but I'm definitely paying more attention to the NFL this year. I've typically been kind of bored by the NFL and more of a college football side, but it seems like a, an unusually fun year, I, probably influenced by Lamar Jackson and the, and the Ravens, but it's more than that. I mean, the Pats have been the class of the, of the league so far, but they're not so far out there that they aren't untouchable obviously the Ravens yeah. showed us that that but then you have these things that just it's just hard to make sense of like new orleans everyone's like yeah new orleans they're gonna be in the nfc championship and then they and they're playing the falcons who have one win all year and they get smacked down yeah that was interesting now i mean that was obviously one of the more interesting games actually or or or, or, or tennessee uh, Tennessee beating the Chiefs. Yeah, I thought. That, I mean, I mean by the way, to... that was I think the game of the week last week. It was unbelievable. That game was so back and forth. Were you it watching? Was, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was um, very exciting. That's great. And what did you think about Mahomes? People said that I mean, he had a couple of phenomenal plays, but he wasn't quite as sharp as he had been. This is his first. Yeah, game back, no, right? I, I I agree. But I, I mean, I think it, uh, Mahomes. I think you know. I I think Mahomes will succeed as long as he has a, a, enough of time, offensive line play. And really, that game was the, the the problem with that game in Kansas City's perspective is the defense. And I think they still kind of have. I think their defense is a little bit better than it was last year. I don't know if the numbers actually support that or not, but but not discernibly so. I think mm-hmm. it's sort of you know the you know one of the one of the points that Michael Lombardi did make that I agree with is that you know controlling the pace of play does seem to be quite important in today's NFL with some of these higher powered offenses and and. You know, Kansas so City's inability to kind of get their offense back on the field. And Tennessee just ran all. Derrick Henry yeah. just ran all over them. Right? Ran all over them. So, what? How much do you update when you see 
KC do that or you see New Orleans lose their game? I mean, do we learn anything about New Orleans? Do you do you say, oh, they're not the team we thought they were? Or do you say, ah, that happens in the NFL. It's division I rival. Think, I, I think it more it happens in the NFL. I mean, I, I think that Atlanta game will look back. You know, I mean, it's kind of like people had this mantra for many, maybe it's still happening, this mantra that the Patriots are, you know, are obviously going to be there at the end, but they'll always drop a random game or two during the season. I think that's probably what New Orleans, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to win every single football game. Yeah. And it's hard to kind of, you know, necess- you might just kind of come into a week and maybe you know it, it just doesn't work out and you I mean they were facing obviously a, a quarterback who can be great and yes. some, a receiver who can be great and so yeah, that, no, that's and always I, I mean and you know Atlanta certainly I don't think Atlanta Atlanta in a personnel sense was not it should not be like a one and seven or two and eight right, type team right. anyways so. did you watch any of the Minnesota Dallas game yeah it was a Sunday night game yeah, yeah I yeah. happen to have it I basically had it on the I never watched mm-hmm. the entire game and, and on a Sunday night but I did this one all the way to the bloody end and something that jumped out to me, I, I wish I could get the stat on this. This is gettable. Someone's got this out there. But but I was astounded, more or less astounded, by how often Dallas stayed with the run. Yes. Compared how the, the success they had passing versus the success they had running would have led you, led you to believe that they would pass more. So, look, it's easy to, oh, the running play doesn't work out. They should have called a pass. It's yeah. easy to, and you get it kind of pulled into that kind of hindsight bias. But I was making those calls, I mean, like everybody was. Out of sample, it's like late in the game. They're driving. They're driving the field to go down, and I forget what the situation was. They needed. They needed just a field goal, right? Mm-hmm. To, and and um, and they get down. They get down there on like a twenty yard line, and they're they're second and two, and they just need to convert this and keep on moving. They're going to win the game. Second and two. Maybe maybe they needed a touchdown, and they they rush. They 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 rush uh, Ezekiel Elliott. He gets nothing. Third and two. They rush him again. He gets nothing. Fourth and two. They they they. I think they finally threw the ball. Yeah, but I mean, they, they put, yeah, and I don't think they put themselves, I mean, I think probably the current, you know, kind of generation of analysts was probably, po- all, we were all pulling our hair out with that. Well, in particular, I want to know what the play success, just the play success numbers. So the, did they advance it? You know, they say ahead of the chains for, for the game, passing versus running. And to the eye, and I wasn't paying that much attention, but to the eye, play success passing was like 50% and play success running was like 20%. Yeah. No, and I, if that's your game, that's your those are your game numbers, at some point you shift your strategy. No, and I if, agree. The reason I'm belaboring is because Dallas is known for, you know, they they paid Zeke, they and they're going to they're going to run him by God. And it's just you don't you don't see the adaptation that you would like to see. And it, and I I didn't care that much who won the game. It was a great game, but to see that stark, I feel like Sometimes you see more adaptation among some coaches than others. No, in some I, I think that's right, and I, I think that's. I, I, I mean, I don't know if the word is the, whether it's a humility thing where you've got to, you, you know, you're like, well, I'm just not going to go away. I, I, I made this game plan. I'm going to stick with it regardless of what the actual game context calls for. Um, or whether they saw a weakness that they thought they could exploit, and they were just unsuccessful at, at it. I'm not point, sure. Yeah. At what point do you update? Yeah. So, so as you look around, Shane, as you look around the NFL, who 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 do you have? So right now, the betting the betting odds. Vegas says if you want to pick the NFL champion for winning the th- the, the whole thing, you get more than fifty percent by just three teams: Pats, Saints, and Ravens. Wow. So I, I I mean the only thing I respond to with that I mean I do think you know the. I mean, I, I think the AFC is a three-team race right now. I think you can't really discount the Chiefs. I mean, you, you their so record— So you don't put the Texans in there? 
I do not. I do not. I, I think the Texans. I mean, I love Deshaun Watson. I, 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 I think he's at a Mahomes level of excitement. He's yep. a fun player to watch. But yep. I just don't think that team defensively without JJ Watt is going to be there at the end. And I just, I, I, I continue to. If, if you want to sort of, if you watch them consistently, if you want to see bad coaching or bad, you know, sort of like non-adaptive kind of yeah. play calling. I mean, Houston. I just can, do not have the confidence that when they get up against the good teams, they're going to call a good game against. Isn't them. that amazing that you? Could we, we should have a, a number. You know, we have yeah. numbers on quarterbacks. If a quarterback goes out and his backup comes in, we update our power yeah. rankings, and that quarterback will cost them, you know, an expected three points per game or something. It, we ought to have, and we, we don't see enough mm-hmm. movement to do this, yeah. but it would be nice to have a coaching number. Yeah. And we know that Bill O'Brien costs them whatever the number is. Or that you know Bill Belichick gains a certain number. Yeah. So Baltimore doing as well as hurts Kansas City in the sense that they're probably not as locked into the buy as probably people thought they would be at the start of the season. Um, but I still think that 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 those are the three teams in the AFC. I would have a tough time choosing between them to be honest. But over so the what, NFC, what, what, I, real quickly before we leave yeah. the AFC, what about some unexpected teams? So you know this the the season has gotten more interesting, yeah. kind of both from the top down and the bottom up. So here come the Steelers, for example. Yeah, and look at that defense. Do you really? I mean, defense defenses have carried weaker quarterbacks. Well, I don't know. Mason Rudolph is is pretty far down the list, but he's a, only because he's young, if nothing else. But defensives have carried teams long into the playoffs, and they seem to have no, quite I, a defense together. Yeah, no, and they they are not a team that I would necessarily look forward to playing in the first round. I, I don't even think. I, I mean, similarly, I think Buffalo. If if Buffalo is one of the wild card teams, I'm not sure really? I would be particularly. Yeah, that defense also is very hmm. scary. Hmm. You know, and and uh, I mean, I guess they won't be playing in Buffalo at least if they're a wild card team. But no, I, I think either team could kind of surprise. Which again, to a certain extent, means you know that the buy make not having to face those kind of teams for for a game yeah. kind of really does help. I, but I could easily see a team like Houston dropping to Pittsburgh. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I, I'm I'm inclined to agree that you know it is mostly a three team race, but psychologically we tend not to unpack the residual. Mm-hmm. And the residual here, kind of the obvious residual here, includes both the Texans and the Steelers. Yeah. And but if you really unpack that and think about it, it's like yeah, they could make a run. Yeah. I mean, it's probably a little glib to say that's a three team race. Okay, but but go ahead. You were well, you I mean, were I, talk I was more responding when you originally sort of said that the NFL is a three team race right now. As, well, as far as the the you field, know, it's the, as, the, the Vegas odds yeah. say. Pats, Ravens, Saints, or the field. Yeah, and you know we always like field bets on this show. And I would t- I would take the field on that, especially because of you know, I mean New Orleans does look great, but I mean there's so many teams in the NFC that look great right now. So tell us who you like best. So we I, well let me let me tell you this just does not seem right. Our rankings we have the Rams the top team in the NFC after the yeah, Saints. Yeah, that is so interesting. It's not right. San Francisco. The Rams are Even in real they, trouble just in terms of already having four losses. I mean, because, you know, they, they're, yeah, they're not going to— power gonna, rankings thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, situation just in terms of, like, kind of the standings, the Rams yeah, are in real trouble because they basically have almost eliminated themselves from the division race. So they're really competing for a wild card. But, you, I mean, to have four losses at this point, even to be competitive for the wild card, yeah, right. you've got so many teams with one or two losses, right, right, essentially, right. in the NFC right now. You're going to have to somehow— Beat out, you know, the second place team between Minnesota and Green Bay for a wild card, or the second place team, be, you know, and then obviously San Francisco, Seattle are going to be competing, and right. one of those teams. Right? How are you going to pass either Seattle or Minnesota, or whoever loses those division races? Good, 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 good. Yeah. Right. Well, you've just run through. I mean, this is a, it is kind of stacked over there. I mean, it is. Lot, and, and given how stacked it is, it is. 
a little surprising that New Orleans would be so so much the favorite. Because just running through it real quickly, setting aside the Rams, Niners, Vikings just win in Dallas oh, on a Sunday yeah. night. The Cowboys, of course. Chicago is fading pretty dramatically, but Seattle. Philadelphia's been a question mark all season. They haven't exactly looked great. They have a good chance this weekend to show us something we haven't seen yet when they're yes. hosting the Patriots. So, yeah, that's right. But, uh, I mean, there's so much potential on the team. And then what about the Packers? I mean, the Packers, a couple of weeks ago, people thought were the class of the NFC. Yeah, and I, I mean, they've kind of had kind of a couple of underwhelming games since then. But they still, I mean, they still, Aaron Rodgers is still playing for that team. And they yeah. still have, I mean, they've certainly improved their defense over what we've seen over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of looking up at your rankings right now. You have Green Bay at like 14th or 15th. They've got like two losses, is that right? I, th- I think it, 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 it's amazing to me. I, I think it just sort of speaks to the strength of the NFC yeah, right now. That that um, at at eight and two, you got to be thinking about potentially a wild card, and and you know if you're another wild card, t- if you're another team like Philadelphia or Dallas, and you're looking ahead, you're you're basically saying oh, we have to win the division. There's no way we're getting mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. Uh, via the wild card mm-hmm. over in the NFC. Mm-hmm. And, so, you know, again, having those many good teams in the playoffs to, to kind of bet on New Orleans definitely being the one to make it out of there, I, I just think there's so many teams that could knock them off. So I, the only other NFL, we'll come back to some games here in just yeah. a few minutes, but people talk about the MVP. Why Why is it that everyone gets, is it just because it makes good radio and wants a take? I mean, I'm, I think it's such a silly conversation. Who's the MVP going to be right now? At like, the halfway point of the well, season. Yeah, yeah. It's, or, yeah. So what about uh, just a real quick round round the world of sports is are you paying any attention to basketball yet? I have not. I, I just I, I think it'll have to be December. December was when I start paying attention to basketball because it's the holidays and you're you're watching more TV. What is it? What is it? About I, well, December? yes, no. I think the winter break. It's still helps. early. The winter break it's still, still early helps. In the yeah, no, no, yeah, no. I don't think it's any more. Uh, you know, I mean, if if you want to kind of start looking at the season as far as kind of when it when it's predictive of of, of success or playoff success or something, I think you'd probably be looking in February or so, something like that. Correct. But no, I, I just think it's 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 kind of like you know it, it's. Um, it's it's going to be a, a dead season for baseball, and it's going to be you know football is going to still be going. But well, let's talk about NBA for a yeah. second because the betting odds right yeah. now have the two big favorites out of the West in Los Angeles with the Clippers and the Lakers both real close, plus two sixty yeah. on the Clips, plus two eighty on the Lakers. The top two teams in the East. This is the same that we've been talking about for a while: the Bucks and the Sixers. Real close again, Bucks at plus seven hundred, Sixers at plus eight hundred, and then it's a drop off from there. So that's just how it's shaking out so far. It's not a it lot is amazing of new information. To me that Gold, well, yeah, the only thing that worth kind of noting, and we, I mean, it wasn't like this, wasn't predicted to happen, but seeing Golden State down there, right at the bottom, it's just remarkable. Is Absolutely. remarkable. Yeah. And you know, there are teams that we like to pull for around here. So we're always pulling for Maury and the Rockets. They're at plus fourteen hundred, the third team in the West. We're always pulling for Brad Stevens and the Celtics. They're Plus two thousand, which looks yeah. like something third or fourth in the. As it starts East. getting colder, I'm going to start really kind of paying attention to hockey a little bit more because this is sort of like when the season starts getting interesting and well. So okay. over the next few weeks, it's going to be my mission to come in talk yeah, to you guys get, a little bit. Let more us about know hockey. what's going on yep. in the hockey world. That's yep. a, that, they Things certainly... are still settling down a little bit. I'm not ready for. I'm not quite ready for my hockey hot takes yet, but I will be. <laughs> well, you know that's a that's a that's a sport that is getting more analytics savvy all the time. That's a real the ho- hockey analytics. Yeah. Yeah. Is, no, is a real it has, thing. and I mean, I think there, there, there's been some kind of technological bearers. It's kind of a little bit harder to kind of you know follow the puck and stuff like that than it is to follow a basketball. So there's been some technological barriers to the advancement, but also some cultural barriers. Um, 
hockey, unfortunately, as has not been one of the more progressive leagues as far as sharing data and stuff like that right. goes. And I'm kind of hopeful that that's going to slowly evolve, too. Maybe I, I the, think they're if- going to kind of respond to, you know, seeing how much extra popularity it's spurning for basketball has got to kind of inspire some of these other leagues. We'll consider NFL as well. So NFL hires Michael Lopez to come in and kind of lead that whole effort. Michael does these big data bowl things and draws in all these folks and gets all of this press and maybe the other leagues will learn from this. The league that most needs to learn from it is the NHL. No, that's true. What's happened for years is that a team who wants to get involved with analytics goes out and, and, and poaches you know, some blogger somewhere. Yeah. And then this is like, And then all their disappears. There, there's like no the, ability to kind of disseminate. Every every team's probably, every all 32 teams are making the same mistake over and over again because yeah. nobody can communicate with each other. What was the TV show a few years ago where people started disappearing? It was like the, it was like End Times. Oh, is that the 700 or is, it, is that uh, what I don't, a different people, one? Everyone yeah. disappeared. The rapture came yeah. and everyone just kind of disappeared. This is what happens to the NFL hockey community. Yeah. People just disappear. Bam, bam, bam. And it's just you're left with fewer people in the public dialogue. So teams yeah. are getting smarter in some sense. But the public dialogue is, is kind of atrophying a, li- a little. That's a little bit dramatic. But it's because there's no data and there's no there's so tight about what teams are willing to talk about. One last word I want to get your take on. Premier League, you're usually a soccer guy. So Man City came into this year, again, the huge favorite. And Liverpool, they have not had the season they expected. Yeah. Liverpool is leading and is the odds-on favorite to win the championship. They're, they're minus 250 right now, where Man City is plus 220. Yeah, I was interesting. I actually taught, I, I, I ran a friend of mine who's a Liverpool fan, and he's very excited about what's been going on. Um, but I talked to him about because Liverpool over the last couple of years has been inter- an interesting team because they haven't you know they haven't gotten over the cusp of the Premier League Championship, you know which they, they haven't, haven't won in like thirty years, which they haven't right? won in like thirty years, and that that's something that really weighs on Liverpool fans. And I, and I said to this person, I'm like, well, but you've had all this success in the Champions League. You know, and and to my, you know, from my naive perspective, that's even better because it's like the champion of champions type thing. Right. But they would actually tr- still trade kind of, you know, at least this particular fan I'm talking to would trade their Champions League success yeah. for actually winning the Premier League. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just a little bit kind of surprised by that. They, you know, they've got this. I don't know how old is how old is the Champions League competition? Because the Premier League's been around forever, and Liverpool's got this history, and so I think that they just feel, mm-hmm. you know, more connected to that and more pride in that. And this is kind of a singular thing, the Premier League. I mean, they play this this round robin. Everybody's I guess ho- it's home so, and home. You and know, that's no, right. No and I, I mean, no I, and I, I, I could kind of, I, I, you know, to a certain extent, I, I understand the sort of ju- the perspective that it feels more earned because it's this very balanced kind of competition as opposed to the kind of it's recognized with the champions league because it's kind of that usual kind of knockout tournament structure that things are just more more random right the champion of the champions league is going to be more random because it's top competition and it's it's a knockout tournament oh and by the way i mean they they, i mean everyone this is the premier league in name but also in fact this is the top league in the Mm -hmm. world you know there are some great teams in other leagues but there's no league as deep as this one and so to win that has its own prestige. By the way, I mean Liverpool beat Man City on Sunday, mm-hmm. so they, oh, they get a, very a, a, a I get definitely, a, I definitely gotten some text from my friend on that one. Yeah, these guys are fired up right now. All right, so let's circle back to our favorite sport of the moment: NFL football. Moneyball matchups. All right, Shane Jensen, we've got a full roster of games as you look around what's going to happen this weekend well i think we have to at least start the discussion off 
with you know my favorite team against the hometown team. It's uh, New England's coming to Philadelphia. Um, I think that that game is going to be one of the marquee matchups of the week, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I, as a Patriots fan, I'm a little bit. Uh, the other thing, kind of the fun dynamic, is both teams are coming off their bye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they've had a, an extra week to prepare for this game. So hopefully we see some cool stuff. That also means that one doesn't have an advantage because there is mm-hmm. there is a reliable edge, just a small edge you get from having. Oh, that and extra I, week I, that's off. the reason New England lost uh, to Baltimore two weeks ago. Is Baltimore was coming off the bye. <laughs> that's, that's the, the reason, only that's reason. The reason. It wasn't, yeah, because it was you know, so, Lamar Jackson it was running so close. for two hundred yards. Yeah. yeah. So that line is three and a half. The Pats are favored by three and a half. What are you thinking? <sighs> I would put that game closer to even. I think I, you know. I mean, I would put the Pats as, as more like a three-point favorite, you know, neutral field. So it being okay. here in Philadelphia, um, I which in Philadelphia is not a fun place. I think for an opposing team to so, come into play. So, so. Do you you haven't updated that far on the Eagles then, because our expectations were hot coming in the season, but they haven't done all all that much. And so you yeah, think they're closer? But, but I mean, if you look at who they, I mean, yes, they, they they I think they've underwhelmed. They, you know, c- compared to people's expectations in the season. But I mean, they haven't had a lot of bad losses you know i mean they lost they got trounced by minnesota but that can happen mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um they got trounced by dallas and that can happen i mean they they're, they're i i think they're they are definitely a team that is uh better than they have performed thus far okay and so, they seem to maybe have turned a corner last week okay we'll line see. is three and a half massey peabody makes it more like four two this is kind of rough raw mm-hmm. massey peabody four two so not much of an edge there but we're not on the side that you're on which is that thing's gonna be closer you think yeah. it's gonna be closer than that actually than the, than the market does. What about this 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 Thursday night game? Did you know that Cleveland's favored against Pittsburgh? They're hosting. I'll, I'll give you that. Mm-hmm. But they're a two point two and a half point favorite against the Steelers, despite what we've seen from the Steelers in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, and despite you know what the, how under I, I mean, I think people are still waiting for the Browns to kind of turn it around. They 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 look at the personnel. You think that might still happen? It. They look at the personnel that's on the field. No, I don't think necessarily it's going to happen this season. I, I don't think it's going to happen in a way that puts – it's not going to – they're not going to turn around in the you know making the playoffs kind of sense. I think they could turn around in a getting to 500 kind of sense for the season. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And certainly, I mean, I, I, I think, you know – I mean, I would based on how they're currently playing, I would kind of favor Pittsburgh. But at the same time, these NFC North matchups, uh, anything quite can a, happen. Quite anything a, can happen. I mean, I would if you if you told not, me not the if pe- Cincinnati's involved. No, probably <laughs> not. Probably not. But even Cincinnati will, would randomly give Baltimore a struggle in like <laughs> a game true. or two, right? That's true. So so no, I I mean I I. I would I would kind of put that Browns uh, Steelers one as a toss up. Well, that's where we put it. We think yeah. we, we we think it's we think it's flat, um, but the market thinks it's two and a half. So there's a little bit of an edge there if you want to jump on. Yeah. It gives you a reason. It's always fun to have a reason to pull for Pittsburgh. And here's a reason to pull for yeah. Pittsburgh. They're playing the Browns. All right. We in the last few seconds is there Texans other, Ravens. Texans I mean, that's Ravens. Got to look heck at it, of right? A game. No, yeah, no. I, I'm I'm just excited to look at two of the most exciting quarterbacks out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's going to be right great. Um, I, I mean, I do again. I always give, you know, given the personnel on the field or relative balance, I do give the edge to kind of, I, I think there's a serious coaching edge uh, for the Ravens yeah, in this one. Right. I wonder so, how we I value mean, that. What's the number there? The number oh, I would the give it, I would, I would put that particular coaching edge at at least three or four points. Wow, that is yeah. big. That mm-hmm. is big. Well, the line is four. The Ravens are favored by four. Massey Peabody puts it at 4.7, so we're more or less right there on the market. I, I would take the Ravens by more than a touchdown. Is that right? So I would definitely take It's on the coaching thing. Yeah. The coaching play. Yeah. Shane has a coaching play this weekend. That's, That's awesome. Right. That's my coaching hot take. All right, man. Listen, that has been another two hours here at Wharton Moneyball. Many thanks from me and Shane. Thanks from Audie Weiner and Eric Bradlow, who are in the classroom now. Many thanks to Dion Simpkins, the associate producer and sound engineer. Boss man, Matty D. 
keeping the show on the straight and narrow, and our assistant producer, Zach Drapkin. All very helpful guys. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.